Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast Well now is the time for the Dopey Podcast When you call in and put all your life on blast And you call in and talk about your past Because your life was curious, hardcore and fast So now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast Now if your life was furious, hardcore and fast You feel like you want to put your life on blast Just call up the show and I talk about your past Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast Dopey Podcast It's the Dopey Podcast The Dopey Podcast, yo This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery Located in sunny Southern California and created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared. Aloe was slated with the mission to treat addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They believe that an addict treated compassionately is an addict that can get well, and I have friends there who say it is working out. They think that Aloe's mission is proven, and uh, they're enjoying their stay there. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including the incredible sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, they have a lot of good stuff going on over there. If you are fucked and you need to get treatment and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I strongly recommend going to Aloe. I just want to tell you guys about a new podcast from my friends at Colorado Public Radio that I think you'll love. Back from Broken is about recovery, the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. You'll meet guests who dealt with substance abuse, PTSD, gambling addiction, and hear how they turn their lives around. Some guests are famous. Others just have amazing stories that are raw, funny, and actually really hopeful. Listeners on Apple Podcasts called it powerful, gutsy, and relatable. Find Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you from the Dopey Nation. And you can help us out by giving money and subscribing to Dopey Patreon. Dopey Patreon is an amazing world of supplemental Dopey material. Every week, uh, I've been putting out an extra Dopey episode. We have 10 Dopey Patreon episodes featuring stories from the Dopey Nation. They are amazing. Check out Dopey Patreon. Give a couple bucks. I want to not work at a deli soon. And the more you guys contribute, the more chance of more Dopey coming to you is if that makes any sense. Also, if you want merch, we have such cool new stuff available at dopeypodcast.com. We have new fucking stuff that you have to see. Tote bags, new short sleeves with just the heads and new colors. Uh, Big Bird is still available. Graffiti is still available. There is some really, really cool stuff at dopeypodcast.com. If you want stickers, you Venmo me. I think I'm basically at a snapback. So snapbacks are discontinued until uh, further notice. I still have ski hats. I still have socks. Hit me up uh, wherever and Venmo me money and I will hook it up. Also, before I go, um, subscribe to Dopey on iTunes. Leave a five-star review. 
Give to Patreon. Help strengthen the Dopey Nation. And enough with the ads. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave, and I am in the attic, and this is Dopey episode number 243, and it has a lot of significance. I don't know why it is, but it seems like when anniversaries come around, they become multi-anniversaries. Like last summer, our 200th episode was also the episode on Chris's birthday. And this time, episode 243 is 100 episodes since Chris died, we've done 100 episodes without Chris, which is a lot. It's 100 weeks. And, uh, and today is two years since Todd overdosed and died. So it is a significant day in dopey history. And obviously, uh, the show has changed a ton. And um, I miss both of them a lot, as I've stressed. And I, I feel like I cover this ground a lot. Um, but it's very, very important that I cover it because... It's basically the thing that brought Dopey into the world was us doing drugs and and trying to have fun in sobriety and Todd never being able to get sobriety and Chris relapsing and not being able to live through his relapse. So I just think it's important that we always keep that in mind. So that's today. Uh, In other news, this morning, there's something that I do that I don't like to talk about because it's so disgusting. Um... And I'm not proud of it, and I'm incredibly ashamed of it. But I have uh, a compulsion. It might be an addiction. I don't think it's a chemical addiction. I think it's a compulsion. And I've had it since I was a kid, which is I, I have an oral fixation where I chew on things. And when I was a kid, I would chew on my shirt collar, or I would, I would chew on towel ends a lot. And as I grew up, I stopped doing that. But one thing I never gave up on was uh, chewing on paper towels, and it is a disgusting habit. And um, it started when I was a kid, and my mother would cut me up an apple and give me an apple wrapped in a paper towel. And when I was finished with the apple, I would chew the paper towel to get the excess apple juice out. And uh, I com- and when I stopped smoking, I really got back into chewing paper towels. And this morning, I was chewing a paper paper towel, and I cracked my tooth, which is what happened like I don't know six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. And uh, I need to stop chewing paper towels. Period. And and I'm me mentioning it to you guys is me making my first step to change my behavior to stop chewing paper towels and. Uh, I'm ashamed and I'm embarrassed and it's disgusting and uh, I'm sorry. If anyone in the Dopey Nation has a disgusting habit uh, that they would like to tell us about, please write us at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And again, I'm incredibly ashamed for my proclivity to chew paper towels. I hate to admit that kind of thing. But once in a while, you got to let it all hang out. you gotta, you got to come clean. We are only as sick as our secrets. And before we get into the meat... Of this week's Dopey, I got an email this morning and I am compelled to read it. It's from a woman named Marla. Um, She writes, Dave, your story about the gecko broke my heart. You are the worst pet owner and a terrible example to Nora to kill crickets and show no regard for life. 
The poor gecko is dying, lonely, in confinement, missing his family, and on and on. They don't belong in a cage, and worse, alone. You should find a loving, caring home for the gecko since your family does not care for it. You should have released the crickets into your garden, their natural habitat. Why do you kill them? Who are you to kill? This fucking email is making me crazy. From one Jew to another, here we go. I'm surprised you would kill anything. My dad would have a field day with this one. My father taught me to always put the bugs outside. Most bugs are good and won't hurt you, and they serve a purpose in our ecosystem. But, of course, Marla writes, ecosystem. Eco, I believe, is E-C-K-O, I think. Is it? Oh, no, E-C-O. Eco is E-C-O. Echo is E-C-H-O, Marla, animal lover. Why don't you explain to Nora that the gecko needs to be in his natural habitat and not in a cage on her desk? Turn this into a positive learning experience and grow from it. Teach love and compassion. I have not listened to the dog episode. I won't because I'm afraid for the poor dog. You are the worst pet owner. I heard the punchline that you don't have the dog anymore. Poor doggy. And she misspells doggy too, but I'm going to let that go. Now feeling rejected and abandoned. It will forever have trust issues and baggage. Why do you get pets and get rid of them? Pets are a commitment and they become part of your family. Don't ever get another pet. You don't deserve one. Fucking A. And why does Linda scream? No screaming. Do you want Nora to scream? You and Linda are the example. I like the dopey podcast, but not the heartbreaking animal stories. They are not funny. Please, no more heartbreaking animal stories. Stay safe and be well. Love, Marla, in Encino, California. All right, Marla. First of all, thank you for the email, and thank you for listening. I appreciate that. Secondly, I do not endorse any sort of animal cruelty, animal abuse, or otherwise. I do my best. Historically in my house, my family is a bunch of women, and I'm not saying that most women are afraid of bugs, but the women in my home are afraid of bugs. And every time there's a bug, they call me. And every fucking bug I've ever seen in the house, I have caught with my bare hands and let free in the yard. Except one time when I accidentally broke a, a daddy long legs legs and I killed him to put him out of his misery. Misery, not misery. That's my cracked tooth. It makes me say misery. Anyway, I defend the lives of these bugs. And I always have... have um, What's the word I'm looking for? I've always advocated on the side of insects in our home. The gecko, you know, first of all, the dog. Linda wanted to get the dog. I didn't want to get the dog. We wound up getting the dog, and we wound up not being able to handle the dog. The dog was not a puppy. The dog was two years old. He was already being shuffled around from home to home. He already had baggage. He came to our house. He pooped in the house. He almost bit Linda's father's face, and he vomited shit in the living room. And I was going to work at 5 in the morning, and we had a very small child, and the dog could not be cared for. So the humane thing to do was to give it to a loving home where it could be cared for, and that's what we did. So we took care of the dog. As for the gecko, I mean, how wild and amazing are most geckos' lives? They're up all night. They sleep all day. Uh, When I've gone into the room at night, the gecko looks like he's having a pretty good time. He's spry. He's eating. He's all right. As for those crickets... 
They bred inside the tank. They were too big for the gecko, whose name is Flash. They were too big for Flash to eat. They were escaping the tank, and they're very loud, and they keep the family up. So I decided in the heat of the moment, I had to kill the crickets. I'm not proud of it. I've lamented it. I've had thoughts about those crickets. The other day, I actually killed an anthill in my backyard, and I felt bad about that too. But these are the decisions we make. So I apologize. We advocate only kindness to pets, and it looks like in the near future we are getting a kitten. So watch out, Marla. Watch out. Um, thank you for the email, though. Please uh, send emails to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I apologize to any animal advocates that think I'm cruel to animals. I love animals. My family loves animals. Before we get on with the show, I just want to wish a super big congratulations to your friend and mine, Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll. He is celebrating three years this weekend. It seems like all of Dopey Nation Iowa is going to be there as well as some Canadian guests. So I'm wishing you well, Matthew, and your Midwestern Canadian cohorts and, uh, Dopey land out there. This summer, it looks like we're going to have some pretty fucking good guests. So I think we're going to call it the Wicked Fire Summer of 2020. Even though we've had problems, you know, pandemic, fucking social unrest, unraveling of society, there is great hope in the air. I believe uh, good things are coming, especially to the people in the Dopey Nation. So look out for the Wicked Fire Summer this summer. Summer, excuse me. Coming up on Dopey, we have an amazing guest. She is a big-time model. She is listed on Maxim's Sexiest 100 Women of All Time. She's an actress. She's been in movies such as Blow and Charlie's Angels, among others. Her name, she was featured in Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest's amazing show, uh, Sober House and um, Celebrity Rehab. Her name is Jennifer Jimenez. Talking to her was a total pleasure. Uh, here you go. So I'm very excited. I used to watch our next guest on TV on a amazing show. I used to get high and watch your show, Sober House. <laughs> it's, it's Jennifer Jimenez. She is a supermodel, actress, interventionist, TED talker. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am so honored and nervous to be on your show, but thank you. I think it's, I, Jennifer was telling me that she's nervous to come on Dopey, and I think, I think you're the first guest, besides Dopey Nation members, that ever said that, so thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I mean, your show is a huge success, and like your audience is so rad, and I'm, I'm intimidated. It's good, though. It's a good thing for me. It's good for me, too. I'm happy to have you intimidated. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, and I... Um, I watched you on Sober House. You were the tech on Sober House, and I've seen some of your insanely uh, beautiful pictures. And I saw you in Charlie's Angels, and obviously in Blow. And and I, you know, I was using around the time that you were like a public authority figure from rehab, and I was like, I was yelling, I was rooting for the junkies against you <laughs> back then. Um, we'll start there. How what was it like to be? Because uh, how sober were you at Sober House? Like, how long have you been sober? 
when we did Sober House, I was only two and a half years sober. And Dr. Drew, actually, at that point, I weighed 267 pounds. I lost 140. I gained weight in recovery. And like people always say, oh, that freshman 15, like that was not my story. I gained a freshman 140 pounds. And uh, and I ended up losing that. But that's a whole nother uh, conversation. But I, uh, I was two and a half years sober. Drew was my doctor in real life. I went to treatment and um, he asked me to do the show. I called Hollywood a chapter. I moved an hour outside of LA. I told everyone it was Egypt. It was only an hour outside. And um, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And at two and a half years sober, my sponsor told me it was time for me to find a job. Right. And I remember I was like, I don't know who I want to be and what I want to do. And she was like, why don't you write down who you want to be and what you want to do and go get a job. And I looked at her and this is such an aha moment for me. And I looked at her like, well, what am I going to do? She goes, go apply. And I'm like, where? She goes, I don't know. uh, Starbucks and Target. And I literally looked at her and I go, what the fuck am I going to give him? A headshot and a resume? Like, I have no fucking job skills. And, like, I really meant that. I applied at those two jobs. But in the meantime, I wanted to prove to her, like, that she was wrong. And, like, I still yet wanted to prove the program and, the tw- you know, all that stuff is, like, hocus, hocus pocus. And I wrote down 80 fucking five things. Like, I want I want to make a difference. I want to stand for something. I want to back on TV. I want to be a businesswoman. I want a huge platform, blah, blah, blah. Go apply. Don't get those two jobs. Six weeks later, Drew comes to me and says, will you run Sober House? And um, by the way, Dr. Drew had predicted me dead the first year. He said I was one of those hopeless cases that, you know, some of them need to die for the rest to get them. Get it. Uh, and I, he knew that he... He knew that I knew he said that. And I looked at him and I said, why me? And he said, because it's people like you that prove me wrong. Keep me doing what I'm doing. So thank you. And I just looked at him with a smirk and I went, ain't that about a bitch? And it was just like such a great moment, you know, because I had, you know, left treatment. And and, and after I left treatment, I like started like bringing H&I to my facility and bringing, you know, becoming like bringing all these meetings there and like secretary meetings and doing all that. I was all, all about like the program and he gave me his high profile clients for funding for free to sponsor. And then he did sober, he did celebrity rehab and he said, I want you to run the house. So I became the house manager and I'd never a done reality show B worked in treatment right. and had no idea what the fuck I was getting myself into. And like literally day one opening, the door and Steven Adler coming up to me and like you know eventually a couple days like two days later like beating the shit out of me and like it was me against eight of them all the time and I just wanted to save them you know what I mean like it was like I had no idea what I was doing well the fucked up Um, thing isn't the fucked up thing that you were one of them and then all of a sudden you're not one of them, but in your heart you still are. That's the crazy thing when you work in treatment, I think. And it's like you against them and them. You know, I was always like in treatment against the, the staff in my mind, even though the staff had once been where I was. Isn't that a weird yeah. kind of dynamic? It's the craziest dynamic because... I, you know what it was, is I got to see what it was like to be on the other side. Like I got to see what my poor mother or anyone that ever liked me or loved me felt like when they were around me, you know? And like, I like, they were my mirrors. They were my mirrors in many ways. And, um, then comes Andy Dick, who I thought was going to like literally plot my death. Cause I, I, 
I was going to walk off the show. Like day five, no sleep, um, gotten beaten up, like, you know, attacked by all these other people and all this chaos was going on. And um, Andy Dick knocks on the door. They tell me someone else is coming in. And I'm like, this guy's going to plot my death. And like literally Andy Dick was my saving grace. I, I know it kind of sounds kind of crazy to say that, but he gave me, first of all, laughter like I'd never felt or I remember laughing for the first time like from the gut you know that laughter that yeah. that I can't control laughter and I'm two and a half years sober so it took me two and a half years to finally really laugh and uh, I remember one day we were hiking and he was like so you're fat and you need to lose weight and you need to get back into acting and I just looked at him like how do I do it and uh, he put me on this like fast and like I was like I was drinking all this fiber stuff and shitting everywhere so they were doing poop pranks on me all the time and wow. like it became amazing but I was when the show came out I mean I cried all the time when we were shooting like I mean every day I was crying hysterically because I literally didn't know what I was doing and they made me look very strong on the show but behind the scenes there's a lot of crying and Andy Dick I remember saying like he we were running around the house with like towels on us like and I was Captain Savaho and he was Inspector Groper and like that's what like I mean that's how like insane that that first season was you, you know? get you get to you get through it with whatever laughs you can Andy Dick came on Dopey one time right he came on uh -huh. Dopey on the phone while he was at the museum with his girlfriend um, and he was drunk and uh, and the Dopey Nation like never hated a guest like they hated Andy but I loved Andy on the show and uh, and I would text him you know months later and uh, and he didn't know who I was and every time I texted him he would be like who are you and then I'm like one night I was putting my daughter to bed my baby daughter to bed and I text him and he wrote can you send me a picture because I think he thought like I was some dude trying to date him you know <laughs> so I sent him a picture of myself while I was putting the baby to bed and all he wrote was how old are you which I th which I took as a terrible insult at the time but I love Andy Dick how is he are you still in touch with him how is he doing um he I, I don't know how he's really really doing at this moment like Andy does good and then Andy doesn't and I he knows I'm always here for him when I when and that I'll you know I'll help him whenever he needs the help he was going through a lot recently um with somebody shot themselves in his house um and killed themselves so that was like a big thing um that happened and he's I think he's going he's really going through it right now wow. but my I I I'll always be grateful for him and I'll always love him and like he has a special place in my heart. Right. And when, when Drew, I, I hear you and I, and same with me, even though I only had him on the phone and he made weird sort of advances on me until, <laughs> until he saw my picture. But, um, uh, when Drew, when Dr. Drew said to you, um, you're, you're going to die, you're a low bottom, you know, whatever you're, you're going to, you're not going to get this and you're going to die. Do you think that's something he said to everybody or do you think, I mean, cause I know that I've been in two situations in treatment. I remember the first time I went to treatment, I went to detox at Beth Israel and I was 23 and I just snorted heroin. And I, you know, I was not like, I, I was like not in trouble. And the doctor stupidly said, I don't think you're in trouble. And of course, I wound up using for another, you know, 18 years. Um, and then when I went to treatment in California and they started telling me that I was a low bottom addict that was going to die, it was much more effective. Do you think Drew picked you out or do you think that was his rap? 
No, he he knew that. I mean, it was, it was serious. He was a serious. He was not even joking around. Like, I don't think it was. I don't think he, I know he didn't say it to many people. Like, and I remember Bob Forrest saying like, you're a level 10, like you're just a level 10 addict. Always remember that. Um, and I, he had called my mom on three different occasions during my detox and said that I may die from the alcohol withdrawal. I mean, it was really bad. I ended up relapsing in treatment. I went for five days. I went under my terms. I was going just to shut my mom and my best friend, Brandy Glanville, um, up and they were the last two people left in my life. And, um, I ended up staying from July 12th till November 2nd relapse. I'm one of those people, um, that breaks the dynamic for the rest of, you know, the group to go, you know, crazy, um, in treatment. I relapsed and then I came back January 15th right. and, um, that's my sobriety date, January 15th, 2006, which is pretty, um, but, pretty amazing. Congratulations. Thank, thank you. Um, there's just a lot of yesterday's put together. I mean, they really are. That's all it is. Like today's a new day for me. It's a new date. Um, I don't know how to do this thing called life yet. Like it's a new experience. However, I have spiritual tools today that help me, you know, to figure it out. And I tell myself, like, I don't know very much. I love not knowing very much. I'm open to be teachable constantly. Um, and, and I got to stick with that, you know, um, but when I checked in January 15th, when I relapsed, I thought I, in treatment, I thought I was just buying an eight ball of Coke a day. And um, they tested me and I tested positive for horse tranquilizer, rat poison, speed, heroin, name it. Um, it was in there and I needed to detox in the psych ward. Uh, Wait, so all that shit needed, was, that shit was, you were just buying Coke and everything was in the Coke, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's what my dealer hooked me with. And um, I wouldn't understand why I was nodding out. Like, I still have the scars on my on my fingers from the cigarettes burning on them and on my legs, a constant reminder. Um, and I was thinking about people. Like, I was thinking about Bob Forrest's fucking red hair, what shade red it was, what glasses he was wearing, what sh- you know hat he was wearing. I was thinking about Process Group, who was hooking up with who, Dr. Drew's little stupid smirk he makes. I love his smirk, by the way. Um, and, like, that's a really fucked up place for a girl who wants to sedate herself and numb herself to be in, you know? Um, my mom literally had come to my house and said, Jenny, I can't, you know, you're not going to be here by, in, at, my, at this house. You're going to come to your, my house. I'm going to pack your bags. I don't care if you drink and use there. I need to be with you. I buried you into this world. I don't want you to, to die alone. I want to be there to watch you take your last breath. Wow. And I was okay with that. You know, like, it's like, I look, I, it still kind of hits me, you know, like it's, it just, it makes me emotional that my poor mother, you know, like, she was okay with it. She just wanted me to be with her. Like, that's it's beautiful. Um, it's beautiful. I mean, and let's turn and, let's, let's let's turn the clock back though, um, because I I didn't know your story, you know, uh, until I started like being like, I bet you she'd be good on Dopey, and I start re- <laughs> I start reading about you, and I and I saw your TED talk, and uh, and I've just been kind of absorbing your your story, and. Uh, and you got discovered when you were 13 just at the beach, at the, the pier? Is that yeah. what happened? Yeah. I uh, My family's from Argentina. They came to America. I had an American child named me Jennifer, went back to Argentina. And at six and a half, my parents realized that my little brother and I would have more of an opportunity in America than in Argentina. So we moved back to California. And uh, when... 
I was 13 years old. I was at the Santa Monica Pier with my mom, my little brother, on a Sunday afternoon. It, I was two months shy. It was February 16th um, of turning 14. And this photographer named Bruce Weber, till this day, still one of the biggest photographers in the world, came up to my mom and I and said, you know, that I had the right look and he was a legit photographer and he was doing this thing for this really big designer. And if I could show up the next day, my mom, of course, was a little hesitant and, uh, she let, I convinced her that night to let me show up and like what little girl, you know, a lot of little girls want to be models or something like that, you know? And, and, uh, I wanted, I was like, please, you know? And so I showed up the next day and my life literally went from growing up in dirt roads and donkeys running around everywhere in Argentina to becoming a supermodel overnight. Um, I've been on almost every magazine cover. I've done every catwalk all over the world. I've, um, I've done a bunch of music videos. I've worked with people like Tupac, kind of cool to say because I like him. Um, Prince, Babyface, Mick Jagger, Lionel Richie, um, list goes on. Like, who who is the best out of those guys? Who is the most fun to be around? Did you talk to all those guys? Just curiosity here. Oh, yeah. The most... One of the most prolific human beings I've ever met in my life was Tupac. He was the coolest, kindest, most intent, like intuitive, intense, like man I've ever met. Like so profound. Um, I'm in all his like collection books and stuff. Like I play, like I, I, it's all about you, the music video, and I transform into the motorcycle girl next to him, the Egyptian girl. Like I, I'm a cop in there, I arrest him, and all, I'm on the runway. You know all those photos of Tupac on the motorcycle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bandana back. I'm the girl always next to him. So yeah, he was amazing. He was he was incredible. Um, Mick Jagger was like it was he was pretty awesome. I mean, it's fucking royalty. So. What did Mick Jagger have anything? I had a dream the other night that Mick Jagger came on Dopey, and he was good. Um, he's got crazy stories. Was he kind and cool and talked to you and stuff? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I play his love interest in uh, in this the video that I did with him. He was fascinating. He was like he was sixty, really... and you were like nineteen, right? Yeah. <laughs> God bless him. Exactly. Um, so how old were you when, when, cause you're, if you're 14 and you weren't drinking or using as a kid, right? Okay. So my first drink, so my family in Argentina, they love to drink. They love to drink a lot. I remember people drinking and having a good time. So I always equated drinking to good, like in happy. I remember people dancing and like, just my family's very intermeshed. They, you know, the Latin family, they come together late at night, have late night dinners. And like, I always remember the drinks were on the floor, you know, and like people pouring drinks and lots of laughter. And, um, when we came back to America, when we came to America, my parents tried to do that. And that did not happen. There was so much trauma and chaos going on. And, um, at 12, I remember vividly, I'll never forget this day. I'm standing in the kitchen, making my brother a sandwich. I look over and there's a liquor cabinet in the dining room. And I just went, God, I want to feel like they did in Argentina. And I went and I got this cup and I poured all these different liquors into it. And I took my first drink. Okay. The minute I took that drink, it was like, I felt like a cross between the Jolly Green Giant, Wonder Woman, and She-Ra. Like, I felt like I had arrived, right? Like, and my little brother ended up ratting on me that night. 
and everything went haywire and like my parents put me on restriction forever and you know 12 was like the bad year for me uh 12 i realized easter bunny didn't exist santa claus didn't exist i started my period in church like god hated me i didn't know about that like i was i didn't see the video yet in school like there was like a lot of parents i realized they were separating and then they were going through the divorce i thought i was the only kid in this universe going through that um, there's mental issues, health issues in my family and, um, and then dad was the addict. So like I was seeing a lot of chaos, um, and that drink gave me like invisible powers, you know, at that moment, I didn't become an alcoholic though overnight, like a full fledged blackout you know, alcoholic, but the progression of my disease has led me to everything and anything else. Right. So it wasn't even necessarily the fact that you were discovered in this crazy model. Uh, you probably were on the road either way, right? Oh yeah. I was going to get there sooner or later. I mean, uh, modeling really enhanced it. My modeling, you know, they like till this day, if I see a fucking measuring tape, I cringe. Like I fucking cringe. Like I can't take it. Um, if I got measured, like if I get measured one more time in my life, I'll just freak out. You know, I mean, all the eating disorders kicked in. I, you know, it was all about the outside stuff. Like to show those early teenage years when you're learning about self-worth or dignity and all that shit. Like it was out the door. I was only as good as my next job cover campaign, you know, and I was the breadwinner of my family. I had a lot of responsibilities. So I would only go to school like for my freshman and my senior year, like two months out of the year. And then I was coming home and I'd try to, you know, protect people from killing themselves or clean up after my dad or, you know, and then I was been thrown in this adult entertainment world where I was literally selling sex when I didn't even know what that was. So you're, you're, so it all rolled, rolled forward. And also like all that self doubt that an addict has, that an alcoholic has, it's when it's coupled with, you need to look a certain way. And if you don't, you're not the person like it's, got to amp up the uh the intake and stuff when did when did you find yourself really kind of using or drinking alcoholically or using like an addict you know when did when did you notice it really kicking in um well my friends from school like they were like don't you remember this story and that story like i don't remember a lot of my there's like a lot of blackouts and not just from drinking and using but from trauma so like I know that the day I tried cocaine, that was it for me. Like I was 17 years old. I was close. Like I, I remember I was with these two girls, they were models. And like, at this point in my life, I always say I was probably a great model because I'm a great chameleon. And I think we all are in us in after uh, in recovery, you know? Um, and I just remember them pulling this white China plate out, cut, putting this white powder on the thing cutting it all up and rolling this hundred dollar fancy bill and they start snorting away and they're like do you want some and i was like yeah i haven't tried some in a while like i've never fucking tried cocaine up until this moment but i gotta tell you the moment i did that line i was fucking hooked for me cocaine gave me a heartbeat like nothing else ever has right but in the end it brought me to my knees and like it betrayed me but alcohol and drugs, like, it literally told me and made me feel things that no one else was doing for me or I was doing for myself. Like, it told me I was beautiful, told me I was smart, told me I was, invi- I was invincible, told me it would never leave me, told me all the shit until it stopped telling me. And then I was in quest for more. So, like, I, that for me was it. You know, I do 
know that there's a lot of blackout drinking and I was kind of like a trash can those early teenage years like nothing really kind of stuck until cocaine and the and the cocaine was like the ultimate fuel for the work as well right yeah absolutely I mean cocaine came in handy for you know the modeling world for me it came in handy for the quieting the mind until it didn't quiet the mind anymore um yeah and cocaine, ha- cocaine brought me to my knees you know <laughs> how how bad was like the scene like were you, I mean and this is a dumb question so just bear with me were you like the worst addict around or was everybody just like fucking doing coke all day and drinking all night and just going nuts or were you hiding it or was it very public within the the modeling scene I was hiding it. I mean, I, I think it was a bit of both. Like, I, a lot of people were doing it. It was like, okay, you know, like, you can drink and it's socially acceptable. Um, you can do a little bit of blow and it's a little bit acceptable, you know. But then it got to a point that it wasn't, you know. And I, like, I remember starting to hang out with the quote-unquote lower companions and then, like, they were telling me I had a problem or that I should stop. And that was, like, at 21, you know. And I'm like, What? Like me? What are you talking about? Like me? Stop! You know, and and this was this one moment that happened at twenty one where I was on a five day run and I realized it was different than knowing, but I realized I was on a five day run and I hadn't eaten, I hadn't slept, I was stanky, I had showered. Like I don't know if people have not, you know, dr- uh, taking a shower while drinking or using, but I hadn't. I haven't taken a shower in five days right now, and I'm sober. <laughs> anyway, continue, please. <laughs> Um, and well, I can go, I can go like a day or two, but um, (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. Um, but I just remember I went to a place and it was like a, my mom, I was, I was acting like I had it going on. I'm 21. I'm back. Like I outstayed my welcome. I was still modeling. I outstayed my welcome in Europe in Paris and and Milan and London. And I was like back at mommy's house, but I'm super cool. Right? Like I got this shit. Like, and I'm at mommy's house. And, uh, and I remember I was going to a party in LA and I get there early and I tell the owners because I missed them and like I had nowhere to drink and use. That was my truth, really. And I remember seeing people coming in and I had to go act like I was cool. Like, and I was like, what? I got to go act like I'm cool by the bar. So I felt that. Like, I don't know how long I've been living that, um, but I felt it. Yet another moment. And um, I'm there and I'm talking to people and I go home and like, I'm like, I got to, you know, stop. I think I got a, I a problem. And I'm like, but maybe. Maybe I'll go, you know, go get a little bit more. At this point, I had disconnected my jaw that night in a gacked out moment. So oh, wait, how does that happen? Problems. How did you disconnect so your jaw? From all the grinding, I like thought I was a chiropractor or something. But I pulled my jaw and like till this day, it's still, I have problems with it. Like I, that's a, like a constant reminder. Well, from, grind, from, grind, from grinding your teeth on the coke. Yeah, and I just pulled the jaw, like my front part of my jaw out. Like it's, you can see it when I talk a lot. Like it kind of moves side to side. Yeah, it's it's a terrible fucking pain I get all the time, especially when I'm speaking um, a lot. And uh, 
I remember being at my mom's house and like in LA, there's like a lot of helicopters. So like, I was like sliding everywhere. Like they were all after me. And like, I thought my mom put like her church in the trees. And like, I just remember like, it was just a bad night. Right. And, um, it's early in the morning, jaws disconnected. My nose is bleeding profusely. And I'm like, I got to go get a little bit more. That's how I'm going to figure out how to like cope with this. Where were you, like, where were long- you, where were you getting blow then? From dealers in LA. You just would call somebody and go, you're the supermodel and you'd go get it. And was that a weird thing? Were they like all impressed that they were serving you? I think that they were so sick and tired of my bullshit that they didn't want anything to do with me. Like, I'm not that like, oh yeah, hey, it's me, Jennifer. Like, I'm on the cover of this magazine. Like, they were like, oh, fuck, it's her again. You know what I mean? Like, they didn't want, like, I remember one of my dealers told me that I might have a problem and I should think about stopping. And I'm like, what? Just take my money, bitch. Like, I was just so upset. Um, What kind of problems, what kind of problems did you give the dealers? I love this kind of stuff. Like, why were you a difficult just, customer? Because I always wanted more. Like, I mean, I never stopped. I mean, like, I can't. I would buy some, and then I'd need more. And I, I don't care what time of the hour it is. I'd go get it. Like, you got to serve me. Like, I mean, that's how I felt. You know, I mean, I was just that annoying person that, like, doesn't stop until she gets her drugs. Right, and you just keep blowing them up. I used to do that to people. But they I liked it because I, cause you keep their kids in like food and clothing and stuff because you're giving them all your money. So that's the upside. But I guess the downside is you're too in their life. They're like, they don't need your money after a bit because it's too much. <laughs> Especially the ones that like had girlfriends and families and kids and stuff. Like they did not like me calling and like knocking on their window, bedroom window at like four in the morning, you know? I mean, if that was me, I'd be pissed. You know, if that's like my my husband's doing something like that. Thank God he doesn't. But I'm just saying, like, I would be really annoyed if someone's knocking on my window at four in the morning. No, totally. And were you just doing coke and drinking at that point, or were you were you messing with pills or anything else, or what was the? I mean, I would take the pills when they were around, and like Adderall was in and out of my life. You know, as a model. They would take me to special doctors. They would tell my mom and I, like, I remember I had this contract in Japan and I was making what would be equivalent to, I mean, it was a lot of money, a million dollars today. And I had a contract and I needed to be a certain weight. And so they told me that I needed to go to special doctors. And um, I went, we followed direction. I mean, my mom's from, you know, dirt roads and donkeys in Argentina. And they were giving me B12 shots and B12 pills, I thought, but they were really giving me Adderall and, um, and speed. Like amphetamine like, shots, like the old days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, I got to that weight and I go, they promised my mom couldn't come with me because my little brother. So they promised my mom the world that I'd be, you know, looked after and taken care of. And I showed up to Tokyo and I'm all alone. I'm living in the male models apartment building. Like I'm like game on and I'm working 17 hours a day. I mean, every single day, cause I had to fulfill that contract. And I turned, I'm 15 years old and I turned my sweet 16 in, in Tokyo. And I ended up being at this playboy man's house, Japanese playboy man's house. There's all these weird paintings. They're telling me it's Picasso. I'm like, Picasso, what's that? Like, I don't know what Picasso is. Um, I'm 15, I'm turning 16, you know? And like all these like older men, like all these Japanese, like older men, like hitting on us. And right. these girls are my best friends. And I didn't know who they are. I don't even remember any of their names, you know? like. It was just, it was so surreal. Um, 
It's a crazy mix. It's a crazy mix of being so high and so young around all this money and it's surfacey stuff and and it fucks up a kid's soul i bet you know it's got oh, yeah. it's got to have been so hard but let's go back to your 21 and you realize you're you're, you're okay. the five day run i'm sorry i like i like to get as much okay. nitty-gritty as i can let's we're Me back too. i like it i was like i don't i'm like totally add in this conversation with you i'm so sorry um so i'm 21 and I'm like, I got to go get a little bit more. Like, I'll figure out what I need to fucking do after that, right? And uh, I'm driving out. up in, uh, There's a street in L.A. called Fairfax. Um, there's a cross street called Fountain. I'm going to make a right in Fountain. It's early in the morning. I'm, like, now jonesing, mind you. Um, and the sun is glaring at this building. It's coming up. It's early in the morning. So I look over, and there's all these guys, and they're all super hot, and, like, they're tatted, and they're smoking. I love I can remember they were super hot in my eyes. And I was turning to make a right, but this girl at the corner looked at me. We made eye contact. And she was like, it's in here. It's in here. And I literally went. I nodded at her, and I was like, oh, this must be an after-hours party. So I pull over, and mind you, I'm jonesing and I'm paranoid now. Um, and it takes me a little while to get out of my car, but I'm going to go score drugs like at this after party because, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> I mean, I've done that before. So I get out, and I go through these double doors into that white building, and I fucking walk into an N.A. meeting. Yes. Like, I had no idea. Like, everyone's in a circle, and they're like, wah, 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 And I go, oh, shit. And they're all looking at me. And the ones that aren't looking at me, I'm just so paranoid. I think everyone's looking at me. I sit down and like I right next to the door and I'm watching everyone. I'm like, I just was like, oh, God, you have to intro yourself. Like, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Like, I don't realize it's an N.A. meeting because I don't know what meetings are yet. So I'm like, do you have to intro yourself before the party starts and people are standing up? And like this guy next to me, three seats over, stood up and I could feel him glaring. And I was like, fuck or whatever. I mean, I've done worse at after hour parties. I stood up and I was like, hey, my name is Jen. I'm like you. Like, I didn't know. And they applauded and I waved and I sat down. I went, what the fuck am I gotten myself into? Like, not what I thought it was. So I leave. And as I'm walking out, I like this guy says Jennifer and I hear him saying that and I go do, 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 and like thinking in my head like this guy talking to me I turn around and I flick my hair trying to be all sexy I was like yeah jaw grinding and disconnected nose dripping with blood um and sweating um he's like you know there's a meeting here tomorrow at noon you should come and I'm like all right cool thanks like I think he wants me right I'm <laughs> like, sure he did I'm, but continue uh, yes yeah. Yeah, you think so with all that blood dripping down? I know. Well, he was. You never know. Anyway, so when did you when did you figure it out? Um, When I, I mean, I realized it was some kind of a meeting. Like when I sat in the car and I was like, "Is that like those meetings that they talk about?" Like, and I'm thinking, like, should I go home or should I go get my stuff? Like, my guy's only a couple blocks down, and I was like, maybe I should go home and sleep this off. If I want some later, I'll come back and get some. Like I've done that before. And uh, I go home for that guy, actually, and uh, for the guy that talked to me. And I go home for him. I showered for him. I slept for him. I ate for him. And I showed up the next day for him, and I've never seen him since. But that day, that seed was fucking planted. And to me, that man is my angel and my Eskimo. I'll forever be eternally grateful for him because what he was saying that day was, keep coming back. You're welcome here. And um, 
you know, I, that whole process and that whole journey of recovery started. Now, did I stay sober? No. I mean, I'm, I was one of those chronic relapsers. I got, I cleaned up really quick. And like, that's my like fear. You know, when I see these people clean up so quickly, you know, you start getting life back. But like what we suffer from inside that hole, that void, that spiritual malady just got bigger and bigger on the inside. But I made everything shiny and pretty on the outside. And in that time, I, you know, I kept asking dudes to sponsor me, not girls, because I couldn't, you know, have another crazy in my life like my mom. At least that's what I thought, you know, and and they would be like, nah, kid, you got to ask a female. And I'm like, no, fuck that, you know, and I didn't do any of the work. You know, I had no foundation, but I started I wanted to switch careers from modeling to acting. And uh, and I started studying. And then I got in that time, I got my first movie, Blow. Um, And then were you uh, clean during Blow or were you doing Blow during Blow? (laughs) <laughs> was I doing blow during blow? So I was sober during blow in the beginning of blow, and then I was doing blow during blow in the end. I was not sober whatsoever in the end. Was there but was like, there was there a lot of blow on the set of blow? Was it a big like drug? I mean, like I, I love blow the movie more than the drug. Um, <laughs> but like, what was it like? I never even imagined that people could have been getting high during blow. What was? Tell me well, about technically that. Technically, you can't get high during. You can't do blow during blow. Like right. you're doing milk thistle during blow. Um, um, and there's a lot of meds on set. So like as soon as you finish doing a lot of milk thistle, and that's the thing that looked the purest to cocaine, um, they would come over, the meds would come over and like make you snort Afrin, which is not a good drip. So I didn't really like the afterward, the after effects of that. Um, so yeah, but I, I, you know, I did not stay sober, but it's cause I, that's really funny though. I've never had anyone ask it that way. You caught me off guard. <laughs> well, like, well, did you ever, were you bringing drugs to the set of blow? What a, cause that's a crazy thing. I actually contacted, uh, I, I've been reaching out to George Young, the, the dude that the movie was based on. And I reached out to his daughter, uh, Christina Sunshine Young, Jung, whatever her name is. And she said she wanted to do dopey. Um, and maybe she will one day, but I can't, I mean, were you ever bringing drugs to that set? Because that, that movie was about, you know, drug addiction and how it destroys people's lives and families and stuff. Do were you, do you remember actively using that? wasn't bringing drugs to the set. Do you think anybody was, was that a thing? I think so. Wow. Amazing. Um, yeah, I'm, I can, uh, we'll talk afterwards. I can hook you up with George. I talk to him every day. No way! That would be awesome. Yeah, he's, is yeah. he still is he still in jail or is he free? He's free now. Uh, we reconnected a year and a half ago, and uh, I talked to him all the time. Well, send him my, send him I, my best, please. I will. I will, and um, I can get him on the. I can. We'll we'll talk. Awesome. Um, so, yeah. like, so what was that period of time where you had kind of had the answer, but you were still in and out? Like, what did that, like, do you know, like, what they talk about, like, when you have a head full of AA, um, what's that expression, a head full of AA and you have drugs? And, and a belly full of beer. That's it. A head full of AA and a belly full of beer. Uh, that's basically what you're kind of describing, right? Yeah, but, like, you also, I mean, there's a lot of other underlining issues that were occurring with me at that time, too. So the insecurity of, like, you know, here I am, like, doing my best performance, the irony paint playing this, you know, coked out Colombian drug Lord's wife. Perfect. Um, and that being my drug of choice. Um, and you know, I'm doing this and I'm actually like loving what I'm doing. I love acting. I love that whole realm of it, but I would be, I was one of those insecure, you know, neurotic, 
untreated, you know, narcissistic person, you know, like, I mean, I was just so hard on myself and I got beat down so bad with so much underlying trauma from sexual abuse to physical abuse, emotional abuse. So like, I thought it was a piece of shit. Like I would look in the mirror. I remember I was doing something for Victoria's Secrets and like, I'm in the mirror in, in New York and I'm on a five day, like I haven't eaten at all. You know, I'm all bones, like, and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm seeing an elephant man. Like, I'm just seeing this disheveled, gross thing. And it was my prime of my modeling, you know? And it's like how now I look back at that and I'm like that, like, poor little girl looking in that mirror, you know? Um, and I would do anything <laughs> like that now, you know? But right. I, you know, and, and I had so many underlining issues going on and I also was suffering from mental illness and I had no fucking idea. So the times that I was sober, I'd walk around the world and, and I'd literally say this out loud. Like, is this what everyone else feels like every day? You know, like I didn't know that, you know, I was suffering from depression um, and that I needed to deal with a lot of trauma and it was like exuding out of my pores and I had not one fucking concept of it. Right. It's like, um, it's amazing though, like, because now you're like, look how good you looked then and you wish you, and, I, and I'm the same way. I, when I, and I, I wasn't a supermodel in any magazines, but I remember I was like a normal kid and I was like, I'm too fat, I'm too ugly, I'm too this, I'm too that. And I would look back at pictures and I'd be like, I wish I looked like that now. And you know, the same thing is going to happen now. You feel like a certain yeah. way now and you're going to get to be old, hopefully. And you're going to be like, holy shit, I was so hot when I was X, Y, and Z. It's it's like it's a classic i think it's like the classic human condition but it's like multiplied by a billion when you're an addict right yeah yeah and you know honestly i would not want to be a kid today in this day and age uh, being brought up like i do i mean we have social media now like we didn't have that shit back then you know like you had like you know the, what would be the internet trolls today would be you know people bashing you on you know magazine articles or things like that like uh, you didn't have you know reporters or whatever but you didn't have people bashing the way they do now and kids bullying each other and kids so obsessed with that one fucking filter this fucking filtered world that we live in you know i mean that was really my ted talk you know like the darker side of beauty in this fucked up filtered world um you know everything is about the angle of the selfie you know yeah well it's crazy yeah. it's crazy it, but, but i thought the thing that i got from that ted talk more than anything was like treating that that insecure sick self-view with Addiction, You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. that's what happened there. Um, how did you finally, like, like what was that in-between in place like? And how did, like, I, I'm assuming there was a terrible bottom, you know, that led from the first kind of in and out by the, the very, like, elusive Eskimo guy. It's probably Robert Downey Jr., by the way. You just probably forgot what he looked like. <laughs> um, but... Like, how did you go from that to being out for so long and back in? Like, what, what happened there? Um, you know, I, in those process, in that time, like I got a lot of three days, a lot of 30 days. I think I got to like, you know, a year, but again, like I'd stop working the program. I'd start, stop dealing with my issues. I got everything back. Uh, him would be my higher power. And at this point I had relapsed. It was an 11 and a half month, uh, relapse. And I end up in my shoe box in my shoe closet and 
there's nothing left. And my mom, my best friend, you know, I'm doing my drugs in my shoebox. Like, I mean, it's it all in there. And, um, you know, the jaw was just out again, like blood's everywhere. I mean, it's just bad. Forget sharing that one weeks on in. And my mom and my best friend come to me and they said I needed to go to treatment. And I remember wiping my nose and blood splatting on the wall. And I looked at them and I said, treatments for fucking losers. Like, I just like, that was it, you know? And they were like, we can't watch you die like this. You need to give yourself a shot. And I kicked them out that day. You know, when people try to do interventions and they're not prepared and it doesn't go very well. Well, it didn't go very well that day. I ended up really hurting them physically, emotionally and all that. They left and I said to God, you know, just let me go on this run and I'll go into treatment. And I went on a two week run and uh, I was done. And I was like, fuck it. I'll shut these two women up and I'll go to treatment. And I was going to treatment under my terms, five days, checked in July 12th, relapsed in treatment um, on November 2nd. And what was, so what was to, the, what was the relapse in treatment? I called my drug dealer as my family member. So you're in, you're um, in, I, you're, it was in Las Encinas. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're in Las Encinas, and and I've relapsed in treatment. I think those are the best stories. Could you tell us that whole story? (laughs) It's such a fucked up story. Just tell us the story. Come on. It's just so fucked up that I'm actually relapsing in treatment. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the fact that, like, I can't deal with getting on it. Like, I remember Bob Forrest in group would be like, how are you doing today in process group? And I'd be like, I don't know the fuck do you want me to be? Do you want me to cry? Do you want tears? Do you want to smile? What the fuck do you want from me? And like, he'd just look at the next person and be like, how are you doing? Today, right. kid? And like, <laughs> but I literally, he just ignored me, like bypassed, you know, whatever. Like it didn't affect him whatsoever. But like, I literally meant it. Like, what do you want from me? Like, I'll give you what you want. And then maybe I'll feel okay if you feel okay with what I'm giving you. Cause that's how I was raised. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a chameleon. I've become whatever you wanted me to my whole life. So if you tell me to smile, I'll smile. Like I was such a people pleaser. I was such a, I mean, that's one of my isms, you know? And, and, um, and it's like, it's so crazy that like, I literally was being such an asshole about it, but like, I was really serious about it. And, uh, there was just no trauma I was willing to work with. Like it was just everybody else's fault. And I had, I was such a loud like, I remember Dr. Drew going, like, I remember you throwing chairs at me. And Bob would say, you were just really scared. And so the more scared and in fear I was, the louder I got. So I was one of those people that fucked up the dynamic for everyone else. I was like, and I was on a lot, a lot of fucking medication and treatment. Like, my main doctor was like a mad chemist. They had me just to sleep alone, 1,500 milligrams of Seroquel. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of Seroquel. Yeah, it is. 900 milligrams of Trazodone. Right. Rispidol made me want to chest bump guys. Like, right. I thought it was a thog. Like, um, and Bilify wanted me, made me get naked and want to fly off away from treatment on the roof. Like, they had to stop me a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, lithium almost killed me, like, three different times. I mean, like, they had me on everything. And I just remember they'd be like, I don't know what she should be diagnosed as. And I'd be like, a fucking addict, perhaps? Hello? Like... And so I I didn't have the capacity or the ability of like getting truthful with myself. Like they had me so meted and it wasn't Drew that was meting me. It was my other doctor. And, um, and I, I ended up getting pregnant, finding out I was pregnant in treatment when I came in, like a couple weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. This is the truth. And, uh, I went through a forced miscarriage and 
after that, when I, a couple months later, I still wasn't feeling good. And I went to my doctor in LA and, um, I found out that my, I was still pregnant. Oh my God. Yeah. With that baby that was now dead inside me. That's terrible. So I found out I was still pregnant and he went and said I needed to do an emergency DNC because my HCG levels are at 1100. I think it's 1300 where you're considered dead. So I had a few more days to live. So he did a DNC that day with no sedation. So I saw and I felt everything. And not only did I see and feel everything, I really felt like I had a little bit of sobriety. Like I had a little bit of, you know, months underneath my belt. So sobriety. So I was feeling like, what the fuck am I doing on this cold table? And why am I here? And how did I get here doing what I'm doing? And my poor mother and my career and my poor father and brother. You know, I started thinking about all this. I started feeling, you know, and in the midst of all this happening. And uh, I went back to treatment and um, I went back the following week. I can't, I've never told this story out loud. And um, I'm going to do it. (laughs) And I went back the next week and that same doctor that did that DNC uh, sexually assaulted me. So, Oh my God. It was a little too real for me. I've never told that story. Oh, that's, that is crazy. And I'm, I'm terrible. It's, it's a horrible, it's a horrible story to hear. Um, What did he do? He just, he, he assaulted you. He came on to you. Like, was it just like, I mean, yeah, he was doing a checkup. And uh, he uh, he just went off on me. What a fucking piece of shit. And you know what happened? You know, do you want me to tell you what the fucked up part was? Is that I was too afraid to tell anyone what happened because if I told anyone what happened, I thought, oh, he's just going to say, I'm just the drug addict. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't have a voice then. Like, I was so afraid that he would say, deny it. And I would just be the drug addict that's creating the story. And you, know? you never told anyone that happened? This guy never, never, like, was, no charges were pressed. Nobody ever said anything to him? Like, yeah. where is he? Is he still there? Uh, no. So I, I had, like, this, um, because of trauma in my life, I had this ability of disassociation. So I block, blocked that out. Like, I blocked out from it. So at seven years sober... I was facilitating a group and I was doing the paperwork upstairs with all the doctors after my group went. And all of a sudden my face starts going like shaking and I start throwing up and I remember everything that happened. And I don't know if someone in group may have said something, looked at me a certain way or what, but I was upstairs with all these doctors and I had no idea what was happening. And I just started telling them out loud, like, thank God I was around like, I mean, you know, talk about God working in mysterious ways. I'm with all these therapists and doctors upstairs filling out the forms of the clients. And I start telling them what happened. And they're like, oh, wow, you actually, it's ready to come out. And I'm like, what? They're like, you've been blocking this, you know, your whole, like, since it happened. So I was able to have a lot of guidance, you know, and talk about it. And I couldn't remember his name. And then my husband and I walked by and um, his name is no longer at that place. So what a fucking piece of shit, you know, and, um, you know, it's it's the worst is like to be in such a vulnerable situation where you need care. And this is the guy that's supposed to give you care. And he does the opposite. You know, it's just, it's fucking terrible. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened. Thank you. And, you know, 
what the lesson there is is that we all have a voice, you know, and that our voice does matter. And that I was able to see that years later, you know, that your voice, you can tell your truth, you know, and the more we talk about, I mean, I've talked about it in groups and I mean, I've talked about it, but never on a public level this way. I mean, you know, so I'm really not ashamed of it. So it's important for people to be able to talk about these things. Well, it's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. And, and what I hear when I hear the story, like the bigger story, you know, with, um, with the, uh, DN- is it the DNC is the acronym? Mm-hmm. Like, like it's all of this fucking trauma compounded. And, and that's where you start to wake up to uh, to the truth that you can't really do it anymore. You know, I, I didn't get clean until, you know, my, my kid was five and, you know, I was not succeeding and, and, I, and I lost custody again. And it was just an over and over and over again thing until I was like, I can't do it anymore. You know, and I, I feel like, you know, it's different. You know, it's not the same story, but it's basically compounding failure and misery until you're like, what the fuck am I doing, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, and that's it. Like when I came back to treatment, like I couldn't tell anyone. I just, I needed, I, I mean, I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't even, I just needed to like sedate. I mean, it was way too much, way too. And again, I was too afraid to use that voice. I didn't even know how to use it. No one taught me how to use my fucking voice, you know, like I, in that sense. And so I relapsed and then, you know, it's one long night. It felt like, but it was 10 weeks, you know, that I was out. And, um, and when I checked in, uh, this is my, this, I mean, I just knew I, I was thinking about, like I said, Dr. Drew Smart, Bob and group and all this stuff. And like, I just needed to be numb and nothing was working. And, um, and so when I checked in, they need to put me in the psych ward for the, uh, to detox me off of the opiates with the narcotics. And I just looked at them and whatever. And, um, I'll never forget the double doors slamming shut and, uh, a, this all from the locks and a line that friends and family couldn't cross and they, my room was the last room to the left and there's a guy in a chair and his eyes were rolling back and I'm uh, and I'm like how did I me of all people get here like how like, I just wanted that relief when I was 12, you know, and, and from here to there, you know, all the shit that happened to me. And um, there's a guy at the end of the hallway getting jumped by two texts because he was trying to run down the hallway naked, God bless him. And uh, in my room was the last one to the left, and I just remember sitting at the edge of the bed, and the text like, I'll be right back, and I said I needed to pee. And I went to the restroom, and there's no door connecting into the bathroom, into the bedroom. And when I got up, I realized the idiots forgot the belt because, you know, they take away shoes, laces, plastic, and sharp objects, anything you can hurt yourself or anyone else away from you on psych wards. And I looked up just like that, and I saw these objects. I stood on top of one of the beds. It wasn't even a hesitation. And I put my belt through one of the objects. I secured it, and I put my neck through there, and I hung myself. Oh, my God. And the last thing I remember on January 15th where my feet were dangling and everything went black. And so when I came to, I was so fucking upset because I couldn't live and I couldn't die correctly. And I was stuck in this hell of a vessel called me. And because of the fixation, I had a a lot of complications. I couldn't speak, but my brain worked perfectly. Like, I felt like a girl, like a meme. You know, like, I felt like a a girl um, in a glass box. Like, I I would stutter, take me a minute and a half to say, am I going to be like this forever? I would shake. I shook profusely my hands and feet for nine months. That took um, nine months to dwindle down. I would lean over on my bed, and I would, you know, go to myself, say to myself, right foot move, and I'd fall. So I was in a wheelchair. 
wheelchair. Wheelchair, I went to walker. Walker, I went to cane. Freely learned to walk a few months later. I shit myself all the time and peed myself, so I had depends on. I like to call them diapers. Yes. And I threw up viciously um, from the detoxing, and my bones felt like they were breaking from inside out from the detox of the opiate. So, but you, you, but I, I don't. When did you? When did you start using opiates, or was it in the coke? Ten weeks. It was in the coke. I mean, it was in the coke. so it was the ten weeks that I was. You didn't know. You weren't trying to score opiates. It just you had to kick opiates like because they were in the coke. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So it wasn't. Yeah, and uh, and I remember like at Los Encinas, the psych ward's upstairs. So I remember downstairs they had open meetings, and I was by the window, and I was in my wheelchair, and I was hanging onto the bars. It was double window, and it took me forever to try to like open it a quarter of an inch. And I could hear all these people and they were all laughing and people, because someone was telling a joke and someone was yelling at someone from far away. And, and um, I just remember saying to, in my head to God, you know, I said, God, if you exist, it's one of those moments, right? Um, I'll do anything to feel whatever they were feeling. Cause I knew, I didn't understand that feeling, but I, I, I sensed it. And that girl still resides so alive inside of me, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I still feel that and I don't want to forget that, you know, and, and I think that's why I relate more to a newcomer than I do an old timer. Right. You know, I, I just... Well, that's the craziest thing. I mean, because, and, and that was the last, that was the road to your beginning, right? That was the beginning of your, of your time being sober, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, that's a crazy story. Um, it's a crazy, crazy story. And I, you know, obviously I'm sitting in my attic all the time having these kinds of crazy stories, but that one is nuts. And, um, and you're doing such good work now. And like, it's, I just think it's amazing that, that we get to get better. Like, I just think, I know it sounds like a stupid canned thing to say, but it just like, you weren't going to get better. And then you just did, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And it wasn't like, oh, it was easy. Like people are like, well, there's, you know, you don't get it. And I'm like, what? Like, there's no idea where I come from. Like, yes, I do get it. You know what I mean? I've, I've, I've had it all and I've lost it and I've had it all and lost it and I've had it all and lost it. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not like a, oh God, I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, when people are like, oh, I don't have another relapse in me or I'll never, never do it. Like I, there's not a bathroom I don't walk into that I'm like, fuck, I could have used here. Thank God I didn't use here. The obsession for me didn't completely lift, but like, it's not like I want to use. Does that make sense? Like I, I've thought about killing myself one other time. And that was about a year and a half ago. Like that's so scary. And it's so honest too, for me to say, but like, I was like, what's the point? You know? And like, that fucking freaks me out. I got on my hands and knees. I was leaning over and like, it was like the endings of endings that year. And I was healing, you know, inwardly all over again. And I was broken and shattered from a bad relationship. And, you know, I, I really, I was stuck in a job that I, I wasn't growing in and I got comfortable in the uncomfortable. And, uh, and, you know, life isn't always easy. You know, it's not always easy. But I remember getting on my knees and I said, God, you know, I'm not getting up to you relieve this obsession. And, and you know, I never want to feel that again. And I have, you know, not been in one day of a depression since that day. Right. And that's crazy. Because even in my sobriety, I'd know I have tools, right? So I'd be like, oh, it's day two. I'm in depression. This is what this feels like. Okay. And then I tell myself, and, you know, I'll call a doctor. I'll do whatever I need to do. Um, but I have connection and purpose. And that's what we're lacking. 
Right. It's and and I and your whole thing now and has been. I mean, how long have you been working with recovering addicts? Um, for the last, well, since Sober House started in 2000, we shot it in 2008, came out in 2009 on January 15th. So 11 years. Yeah. So. That's just such an incredible thing. And and I guess, did you know right away that you were cut out to do that? Was that just an obvious thing? No, not at all. Not at all. Like, I just, you know, okay, so I did aftercare. Aftercare changed my life. And I did it with Bob Forrest. He did our aftercare at Los Encinas for five years. And like I like said, when I left treatment, I stayed from January 15th till April 30th. I thought it was fucking Groundhog Day, but I didn't say that. I had the gift of desperation. When I went back to L.A. because I needed to get my job back, quote-unquote, right? I needed to get my life together. I All I did was contemplate suicide and using every fucking single day. So this is where the real work started for me. Um, my sponsor at Nine Months Sober told me that she couldn't enable me into a grave. She got sober in 96 in Crenshaw in the hood, like Compton, right? Like um, in 46 in Crenshaw. She told me I need to go to those rooms where she got sober. And um, those people changed my life they rebirthed me you know and uh that's all i did you know go to meetings in pastina and and go to meetings and uh in, in in the hood you know and like those were my people and they i was still a dick you know at times and you know because when i was in treatment the second time from january 15th on they took every it like any privilege possible away from me. Like I had such self entitlement issues. It, like I couldn't get loud. I couldn't get anything. I had that gift of desperation. And when I went back to LA, I realized I had no game left in me. Right. And like those are the two things I wish for newcomers that they have no game left in them and they have the gift of desperation. And with that, you have a blank canvas. You can create the life you want. You know, you really can. And just ask, for, be careful what you ask for because it will come. You know, and out of those 85 things that I wrote down with my sponsor, Answer, um, when I went to go get that job, 46 of them, seven of them have come true. So, you know, and I still have those sheets. I look every year on January 15th to see what else comes to life from that, you know, and, and it's just crazy. You know, I just never thought in spite of my character defects, they'd be my biggest attributes. So I think by getting so involved, you know, and like being so hands-on, and being in that, in, in like the repetitiveness and the, the structure and all that, like, I started seeing people, the flicker come on, you know, in their eyes, like that little glimpse of flicker or that light come in. And I'm like, this is where it's at for me. Like for me, that's my greatest passion. Yeah, it's amazing. And I I also just love the full circle-ness of the whole thing. Like um, you put the list together and you still see the stuff coming coming to you. And like, um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, like I I have, we've been just starting to give out... um, or we've been lucky that, or fortunate that uh, we're developing relationships with different treatment places. So they're giving us scholarships to give people. And like, and I feel very like weird about who I give a scholarship to or whatever, because you want them to be just like you described, like totally blank canvas, totally willing, no game, nothing. But like, you don't, I mean, like, it's so hard to predict. It's so hard to know what is underneath what they're showing you. So like, and you can't, and you can't like call it, you know, cause it's beyond, you know, and also like the craziest thing to me about recovery and addiction is like, you don't know what's going to trigger you. And if you don't have any program and you make one wrong move, it can snowball and that could be the end of you. Right. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially in this day and age and everything that's going on with where we're at. Like, I mean, we heard, I just heard about uh, someone we knew that has 27 years. They're like now out there using to barely like get it together. But people are relapsing like crazy right now. And people are committing suicide like ne- never before. Um, with everything else that's going on, you know, with this whole COVID shit. Like, it's so insane. Like, we are in a pandemic within a pandemic right now. Right. So what kind of uh, advice can you, because our audience is like, it's a good mix of, you know, people using, people clean, and then family and friends and loved ones of of those people. Like, what can you, what can you offer somebody who's on the fence or who's using during this pandemic and feels like there's no chance? Well, I want to let you know that there's hope out there, you know, and that it's there. My husband and I have been, you know, really reaching out and trying to spread that awareness and that message. And then, you know, if you need help and you don't know how to get help, you can always call my husband and I. I mean, we're very reachable um, on social media um, or you can if you if you're a loved one, like you can't you know, baby an addict. If you baby an addict, you're going to bury an addict. And um, we've teamed up with this uh, rehab.com. Like people are like, oh, I don't know if treatment's available for me around here or where it's at. And you can just fill out a 30 minute questionnaire and in 30 seconds, I mean, a 30 second questionnaire. And in 30 seconds, they text you back with facilities that are around your area that you can go to treatment. If you have insurance, no insurance, private insurance, um, in-network, out-network, um, it doesn't matter. And, and mental health as well. Um, it could be for you or a loved one. And, um, you know, I, I just want people to know, like, if someone like me can get sober, you can too. And what I always say to someone out there, like, I encourage the person, you know, to, I encourage you to try to get to know the person you're trying to kill before you kill him or her. Right. Because you might realize that you are so loved and that your story is not done. And then it's up to you how you want to tell your story. And that I can honestly say that I love you and I expect not a thing in return. Just knowing that people are trudging with me is good enough. Right. Um, and that we need each other. You know, we need each other telling our ourselves and like really giving ourselves a shot. Um, right. And you never know. You never know what's around the corner if you're not fucking needing to get drugs. You never know what amazing, like, cool thing is available or possible for your, like, brain or your soul or your imagination. It's like, it's, yeah. it, it's like you can get the shit that you got from using without using. And, and, like, drug addicts don't realize that. You know what I mean? Like, that's a weird, like, philosophy. It's like a, I didn't realize that. I didn't think that I could possibly feel better. Uh, not using like I didn't think it was possible that I would feel happy or cool or interested without using so I mean like just I I love the hope that you give out and um, and yeah check out rehab.com and I loved the TED talk check out Jennifer on the dark side of beauty it's fucking raw Um, but it's I mean it's really well said and I think there's a lot of really powerful stuff and like I have two daughters and I and I, I worry about like the showiness of the world and like how it fucks up kids' souls and, and not that women are necessarily more susceptible than men, but women there's an expectation of them to be beautiful and like and you went through it. You know, you went through the belly of the beast and, and your story is amazing. Thank you so much. You know, I I love that you said that. Like, you just never know what's around the corner. So that day, a year and a half ago or so, um, it was in 2018, towards the end of 2018, 
I was thinking on my third floor in Florida and I was like, what's the point? Right. And I was like, and I literally imagined myself jumping. I went, Oh my God. And I got on my knees, like I said, and I prayed and I said, God, you know, take this obsession. I also said, give me a sign. And, um, the next day, literally, um, I get a call from, uh, George Young and, and I also get a call from blow and I get a call from, I get an email from, uh, this guy named Tim Ryan who, um, wants to talk about work. So we're talking, you know, he stands me up. He says he's going to be in Florida, stands me up a week later. Um, I get, I respond to him. I was like, nice coffee, asshole. Like you're just like the rest of them or something like that. And, um, he ends, we ends up, we end up starting to talk and we're going to team up and, uh, he's a recovery activist and advocate and all this stuff. And, um, we finally meet a month later and he's going through a divorce. And the minute I saw him, it was love at first sight. I swear it was like this rope, like with a magnet connecting to his, like underneath his belly buttons. Like we just grabbed, like I picked him up, I hugged him and it was over. We both knew instantly. And like, I've never been married. I am now married to Tim Ryan and we work together. We have the same passion, which I never thought, you know, that was going to be the one for me, you know, and someone who has the same passion I do in helping. And we speak all of these things, or at least we did until COVID happened. And we do interventions and, you know, we both um, are on the same mission. And I am, you know, I've been in the trenches for the last seven years speaking at treatment centers, detoxes all over the country, like just speaking all over. And now I am doing it with a partner. And I, he was, that was on my list. Like, you know, I wanted to be married, you know, one day. And um, I'm now married and I get to do this journey with my husband. And it's like such a great feeling. It's so great. And sometimes, you know, I want to slash kill, you know, I love him slash want to kill him, but we get through it, you know? And and it's so wonderful to not have to do this alone anymore. Do you think, Uh, do you think that was his plan though? He knew what you look like. He's, he's setting the whole (laughs) thing up. Was that his plan or no? Be honest. No, here. he was like, because he was like, you know, like, I, I, because he has, he's been speaking for years, and he's like, you know, I've had girls, ladies that come, females that come up to me, and they're telling me secrets that like I should not know about, like you know what I mean, like things that I can't help them with. Personally. Dude, it was a setup. The whole thing he wanted, this, <laughs> he had this thing planned out. I'm telling you, um, but it's good that it's 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 good that you liked him. It worked. I'm glad it worked out for you guys. That's good, um, and I really appreciate you coming on. I love your story, and I think it's incredibly inspiring. And you're awesome. Thank you. I absolutely adore you, and um, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, it's what we're here for. Um, all right, cool. So, um, and we'll come on again, and we'll get Tim on sometime. I would love that. I would really love to come back. All right. Well, here we are, hopefully in person. That would be really cool. All right. Well, I love that. That was Jennifer Jimenez. What a powerful story. Uh, What a cool person. She's running around the country doing interventions with her husband, Tim Ryan. And Tim Ryan has some gnarly dopey as well. I just got his book and I'm reading his book. So one day Tim will come on the show. Um, My friend Jeremy is coming back on now. I've been friends with Jeremy as long as I can remember And he was around for a lot of the early dopey. So here we go. Jeremy coming to you from Los Angeles. And Jennifer was from Los Angeles. So this is a real bi-coastal show. Here's Jeremy. Although this is a very heavy show because it's uh, 100 episodes without Chris. And uh, it's two years since Todd died on Friday. Uh, I have a treat for you guys and for myself. 
which is one of my oldest and favorite friends. Uh, Jeremy is back on the show. Welcome back to the show, Jer. Oh, thank you. Glad to be. I like that favorite, favorite friend. When, when it comes when it comes down to it, we are family. I've known you. How long have we known each other? Jesus Christ, forever since first grade. So we're talking about 40, 40 years. We've been yeah, friends. yeah. That's a hardy thing. A forty-year friendship is. A, how old is your brother? He's uh, what? He just turned forty-two. Fuck. So you've known your your brother's known you a little bit longer. Than that. But just, <laughs> yeah, just a he, tiny bit. He squeaks you out. And and just now, every year after he turned forty, his relationship with you has a lot of edge over our relationship. But he is your brother. So yes, fuck it. you know, you know how it works. I do. Um, and I love having you on the show. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and I think it's very significant for you to come on this show because you were uh, you were tight with Todd. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Like Todd was the person. I mean, I've and I've been out here in in Los Angeles now for almost like twenty years. So uh, it's crazy to think, you know, like uh, the person I came out with was Todd. You know, um, exactly. You know, we were hanging out a lot. Uh, you know, <clears throat> it was I, I bought, you know, DK's uh, girlfriend's car for a dollar, you know, and then drove out here in that car with Todd. And it was, you know, that was that was it. Uh, it was crazy. Yeah. And uh, the really crazy thing is that um, obviously I had met Todd a few years before you did. And mm-hmm. Todd moved in with me in Chelsea and uh, and Jeremy grew up across town in Stuyvesant Town, and in our early twenties, Jeremy would come over and get high. You would come over and get high with me and Todd, mm-hmm. and uh, and it started just you know smoking ridiculous amounts of of pot together, oh, yeah. a lot of bong hits, and playing. Uh, was it Super Nintendo or Nintendo sixty four? Um, it was Nintendo sixty four. Yeah. Yes. Yes. yes, yes and yes. we would play 1080. Yeah. And we would play Goldeneye. <laughs> and we would get wasted and on on weed. And somehow during the whole thing, uh, we got a connection for heroin, and and we started doing heroin. The three of us in DK. So the four of us all started doing heroin together. Yep. Um, what do you remember about those days? I mean, I, what I I kind of remember is is like I. You know, like we were smoking a ton of weed and, you know, and, and, and even like doing acid and going to see Jurassic Park at the $3 movie yes. theater and theorizing yes. that, you know, cats evolved from dinosaurs, just crazy stuff. And, yes. you know, so like that was, I remember that. And then I remember going to grad school and then coming back and then you and, and Todd and DK were kind of like, not to freak you out, but we tried this thing. Do you want to try it? And so, like I, I, like I was, I was coming in just as you all were doing it, and that thing being that thing being heroin. Yeah, being heroin. Right, right. And and you know, stupidly enough, it was one of those things where I was like, you know, why not? Life is about trying things, and what's the worst that could happen? You know, like literally, you can hear that stupid voice in your head sometimes, and. Um, yeah, and then it just sort of escalated from there, um, and and it was probably, and I mean, I, I, you know, not probably, I think I can safely say that it was one of the reasons that I decided to move to L.A. was was to get was at least to distance myself from that environment for a little while, if not completely. 
Right. And uh, I mean, like you hear, I, I've heard stories from other friends of ours who tried heroin in that era and they were like, I didn't like it. I'm not doing it again. That shit freaked me out. That shit scared me. But it didn't have that effect on you. No. No, no. I mean, like, honestly, and, and you know, I've, I've listened to enough episodes of, of your show to know that we all kind of feel the same way. You know, there's certain people when they try this thing, they go like, oh, yeah, that's why people love it. OK, I get it. Yeah. And and for whatever reason it is, you know, it, it just it works and it just it's great in the moment. And, you know, and yeah. Even with little miseries that come come from it, like being nauseous or, you know, falling asleep while you're playing double dribble and you wake up down 30 points, you know? Yes. Um, but that's the thing, though. It's like some people, lots of people, me included, or, you know, this is the interesting, I think this is a really interesting thing because I did it. We all, We did it. You, me, Todd, DK did it, and we all loved it. And none of us became junkies immediately. Oh, no. You know, it wasn't like that. It was it was a real flirtation with getting high and nodding out, mm-hmm. and it was once every few weeks, and then it was once a week, and then it was a little bit more, you know, and, and I know that, that I was very guarded against it. Todd was delivering weed at the time. Right. And um and he would get coke. You know, he would he would deliver Bud, and he would oh, he, get he, Coke. He could get anything at that point. You know, just anything. Yeah, but he would he would come home late, and he would do Coke, and then I hated doing Coke, and and then it shifted to doing dope, and I was um I was very scared of getting addicted to it because I had some sense in my head that if you do too much, you're going to get addicted to it, yeah. and and we all knew that, but Todd was willing to go further than us at that point. And, um, and when, that's when we all started to get little habits, you know, and, um, and, um, and I think I had just started working more in TV and I, and I felt like I could afford to do more. Yeah. Um, but, but when you got, you guys took off because we had all kind of gotten a habit and we got scared. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You, I remember there was that story where you got home and you went into withdrawal. I think you told the story on Dopey. Yeah. And it was like, you were just like, I can't do this. And we were all like, I can't do this. And you and Todd took off. Um, eventually, it, it came back around on Todd and I that it was like, I want to do this every day. This feeling is the feeling uh, that makes sense to me. Right. But it didn't happen to you. And why do you think that is? Uh, man, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it was probably, you know, multifaceted and, you know, it just one, I could see it. Like I, I, I got that. I had that moment of clarity, right. Where you see where this is going and it is not a good place. You know, I threw up on the subway in front of my mom when I was in withdrawal, you know, like there, it was, it was becoming, and I'm not good at hiding this, uh, you know, hiding any of this anyway. You know, like I was never good at, I'm not good at hiding smoking pot or having a drink, you know, like I'm, you can see it on me in about two seconds. Um, you know, it's, you know, like I, again, I'm like a, you know, my face is like a book, you know, somebody will say something that's off color and you can instantly see 
see it on my face. So I, you know, and again, I had, I could see it. Like all of these things were culminating into a much larger disaster. I was having enough trouble mitigating like the small little disasters from this, like, you know, you know, this addiction that seemed to be poking its head out. But, uh, I was able to see it very clearly. And once, you know, moved to LA, um, for me, it was really easy to be like, I don't know where it is or how to get it, and no one else I know has done this. So it was kind of simple at that point to to not take the step to go find it. Because once that right. happened, I knew it was going to be a disaster again. Right, exactly. And um, And when you got to L.A., I mean, I think all of us kind of had a minute there where we were safe. When you, when you and Todd went to California, we oh, yeah. were all safe. And it was months later that I wound up uh, using again. And, and that's when my habit went into overdrive, when you guys were gone and I was just like doing it by myself. Right. And, um, and, and same with Todd. Todd. Todd wound up switching to Coke. And, and he, you know, Todd always just went for it no matter what. He hated to be sober. Uh, and you wound up smoking a bunch of weed, but it was, it was pretty manageable. It wasn't the same kind of thing. Oh yeah, no, and right. I mean, yeah, I'm again like once, <laughs> once you know you've you've got you've got heroin in your system, you know, uh, even when you're doing a lot of weed, which is now even just is just hard to do in general because of getting older. Yay! Um, uh, regardless of that, you know, it's uh, <laughs> once you've had heroin in there, there's nothing like it. So yeah, and then we circled back again. And I'm just catching up the story because I think it's relevant. I, I wound up bottoming out over and over and over and over again, losing my apartment in New York City, moving to Florida, going to treatment, and I wound up moving in with you and Todd in L.A. Yep. Um, you were living with Todd, and, and how bad of an addict was he? What was, what was the scene in your house before I got there? Well, the scene, like, before it was just, it was kind of just like regular... It was like Todd in New York before the heroin. It was just, you know, like, yes, there was like a ton of weed in the house. In fact, we were, he was like, let's grow it in the house. And I was stupid enough to be like, sure, he knows what he's doing. What, again, what could possibly go wrong? And not like anything major went wrong, but he did not understand how to do drainage and end up warping the floorboards, which then the, <laughs> the, the landlord had to completely rip out the floor after we left. It was a disaster. But more importantly, did that? Did he ever yield any bud out of that terrible crop he had? I don't oh, remember yeah. any bud. Was the, the, the first one was good- yeah? The first one was awful. But after that, he got a he got one good one, and then just kind of gave up. Right, right, right. Yeah, had all this. But equipment. he lived for it, and he had a fake gun. Remember, he had did the, he? the air pistol. Oh, yeah, he had like a, an air pellet gun that looked like a real gun, and he had <laughs> it in that little little. You know, he had the the grow room connected to his bathroom, and outside of the grow room, he had that desk set up. He always right. had the pistol sitting on his desk. I can't believe you don't remember that. It was so like. It was him like living out some movie fantasy and he painted his whole room black, the yeah, floors black, the walls black. It was always 60 degrees in there and he was always watching uh, DVDs of what's happening. On, um, on a loop. You could yeah. hear that theme song of what's happening. Like literally, it was like clockwork every 26 minutes. <laughs> And then he would let the menu play, so it would go over and over and over again. I know, but he would also, that was the worst when he got back on the dope, because he would just nod out, yeah. and it would play all day. 
and and yeah, again, not even an episode, just the just the menu, the DVD menu music. It was it was frightening. But before <laughs> I got there, he wasn't out of control, right? He it was like it was you guys were like living in a peaceful, normal situation for the most part, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, again, you know, just uh, uh, we were taking taking care of the house. You know, like, just again, it was it was like a regular, normal, um, you know, roommate scenario of you know, like two guys in their twenties, you know, hanging out, basically. Um, yeah, it was uh Yeah, and I remember distinctly telling Todd when he was talking about having you come and stay, I said, "Look, I got to be honest with you. I would love Dave to come, but if you get him, like you can't we can't do we can't ever go back to doing heroin. And in fact, if we have to cut out most of the drug use, I'm willing to do that. But I just want you to know, if you get him back on this, I will be very, very upset. <laughs> but what happened was, and, I, and we'll move on from this story for all the dopey fans who have heard this before. What happened was, when I got, I remember you picked me up from, uh, from uh, the Long Beach airport. Um, I remember yep. flying to Long Beach and you picking me up and how happy I was and and uh, and I remember and you had a beautiful house in North Hollywood and Todd was up in San Francisco and little did we know Todd was getting addicted to crystal meth when when I got there yep. so by the time Todd got back down it was total hell in a bucket you know what I mean it was total fucking sickness and and when Todd did meth I think that might have been the worst Todd was Todd on the meth he was so fucking crazy on that drug um and and you know just but that's what people do but the story that I want to deal yeah. with and um and I and I and and obviously uh I mean anybody with a brain could have predicted Todd dying uh, from this thing because he kept going back to it, but it could have been it could have just as easily been me dying or anybody dying. And um, yeah, you know, do you, when was the last time you saw him? Do you remember? Uh, I spoke to him a couple of times. Like I by you know at that point, you know, like when when you know, especially when he it wasn't in Los Angeles anymore. It was you know like I would just talk to him on the phone every once in a while or texts or things like that. Um, but I can't remember the exact last time that's, and that's something that's really been bugging me for a while. I bet you, if you look at Facebook messenger and you look him up, you'll see the last time you spoke to him. I'll bet you money. Yeah, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, his last years were terrible years for him, but, um, you know, he just, he couldn't keep a job and, uh, he couldn't, uh, stay sober and he could, he didn't have enough money to buy dope and he was just miserable. Um, yeah. And uh, and it's hard, you know. Obviously, I, I think about Todd on a daily basis, and he, you know, I, I, I mean, it's arguable that I do too many tributes to Todd uh, <laughs> and Chris, you know. But it's crazy; they fucking died like right, right next to each other, and mm-hmm. it's and it's and it was built into the show when they were alive, and it has to be built into the show now that they're gone. Yeah. But this is a different kind of thing that I want to do, which is back then, before it all got really bad. Todd was delivering weed. Uh, Jeremy was acting and, and, you know, trying to get out there and just finishing up grad school. And I was doing stupid job after stupid job. And I had met um, a folk singer in New York who called himself 
Kingbird, I think. <laughs> I mean, that's what we called him in this script, but I think we, he called himself Kingbird, and he played. No, it definitely because we didn't. Spot. You didn't change the name. I know that for a fact. I know that you were. We were just like <laughs> we were trying to come up with another name. We we're like, why? He's Kingbird. Just put that in there. Right, and he was a weirdo. He was like a very like a Dylan esque sort of character who like lived in a hotel on Twenty Third Street. And I met him at this very shitty kind of coffee bar open mic place on Seventh Avenue. Do you remember that place? It was a little shitty place on like between Twentieth and Nineteenth Street, and I would play open mics there. Oh, yeah. back then. Yep. And uh, and I met Kingbird, and I decided he was like Bob. He was like Woody Guthrie, and I would be Kingbird's like Bob Dylan to Kingbird's Woody Guthrie, <laughs> which is a joke because he sucked and I sucked worse. Um, and uh, basically, he told me that he um, he was a very strange guy, and he told me that he had had sex with Gina Davis. And that he had had sex with Rene Russo. And me being a young, horny man, I wanted to have sex with movie stars too. And could <laughs> I have sex with movie stars? And Kingbird said, I could. And I said, well, how could I? And he said, well, he's friends with Rene Russo. Uh, and she needs a place to stay, he told me. And if uh, she stays at my house, chances are I could have sex with her. Is what he told me, and me. I, I guess I, I mean Jeremy. You would never do this if it was you. You would have never done this in a million years, right? If some weirdo tells you some a movie actress can stay at your house, and you know it can't possibly be Renee Russo, would you let some strange woman come and stay at your house? No, this is this is how like a movie where you get murdered. Like literally, this is how these things start now. Like this is a great independent horror film beginning you know just some like hey man would you want to have you want to have sex with gina Day? and what year was this <laughs> how old was gina davis and renee russo whenever this happened i don't know they, they had, had to be to at least in their, their 30s. 30, 40s maybe yeah. i think they'd have to be in their mid-30s but let me ask you jeremy just you know help me out help the dopey nation out yes of course what does it say about me that I'm willing to do something like this. Yeah, Dave, that's – like that's – honestly, it's one of the best things about you because like you have this crazy – this you always come to this moment where there's like, oh, there's a crazy folk singer who's not that good who says that he could have sex with Gina <laughs> – he said he had sex with Gina Davis and Renee Russo who don't even live in New York, by the way, live in Los <laughs> Angeles. Right, like you can right. have sex with them, and like at some random thing, and like they were, and like they would be just like okay being pimped out by this gross dude anyway. Of course, there's nothing in the face of this that makes any sense. But it's the wonderful thing right. about you, Dave, is that you're able at moments to just see that that fine crack and go. But what if it's true? Or just the absurdity. Just Yeah, then possibilities right. are open and you're like, what the hell? What's the worst that could happen? Again, when the worst that could happen is, yes, someone could come to your house and tie you up and take your kidney, you know, but if somehow you made it through it and it's just, it's amazing. I think, I think I was always somebody who wanted to collect stories and I just... I knew that this story would be a good story. Like, I, and I think that's what I probably said to you at the time. Like, I know it's not going to be Rene Russo, but I bet you this is going to be a good story oh, yeah. one day. That's probably and, verbatim what you said. 
And, and the, the truth is, the, the weird thing about Dopey, right? The weird thing about all of this is like, yes, it chronicles like uh, a past life of being a drug addict and now a current life of being in recovery. But the weirdest thing is that because I had such a terrible uh, benzo addiction and I had so many seizures, my memory is not great. You know, I, and so, I mean, she came to my house. Like, I remember she came to my house. I don't remember if Todd was there <laughs> then. I think he was. Um, I know that I didn't have sex with her. I know that I didn't fool around with her. And I know she wasn't Renee Russo. <laughs> I, 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 you know, she was a sad lady, you know, who was staying at this idiot 20 year old drug addict's house. And with all of her stuff, and it was, like, incredibly disturbing. Like, if you could actually see it, it was very disturbing. So after it all went down, I decided um, that it should be some kind of a, a show or a film or something. And we sat down, and I don't remember, I, I think there's a dude named Sam, uh, a different dude named Sam, not the Sam who helps me make the show, who helped, who wanted to write a, a film, and we all sat down and we wrote this film. And it turned out the woman's name, I think, was Patricia Mitchell. And we called the film The Patricia Mitchell Story, and we decided we would shoot it, right? And um, we shot one scene, uh, or we shot two scenes. We shot one scene outside on 24th Street that was you and me, and you were Kingbird. And I was me, and we like were singing in the street, and we did that for like 15 minutes. And then, I think DK shot it, if I remember correctly. And then we uh, had the next scene, which is where Todd has to come in and take a bong hit. And that is not the scene we're going to do. But when we did it, we did a track. We, we were like thinking we were like making good fellas, and we shot the tracking shot of <laughs> Todd walking out of the elevator through the floor of the, of the 14th floor in my Down building the hallway. to come into the apartment. Yeah. Where, where I remember I always left that door open. Yep. I never locked the door. Um, and he came in and he sat down he'd take a bong hit and he'd have to be like, what's right. going on? And he, we shot it like 20 <laughs> times and he got, he got so wasted high. and he couldn't fucking, and he couldn't say the line, you know, it was, was, it was a, a joke. Um, but, now, I don't know if me telling, uh, telling you the story and you helping me with the story is going to make this better or worse, but Sam sent me the script, and uh, you know it's two years since Todd died, and this is kind of like a little tribute uh, to Todd. This is after Kingbird tells me that uh, Kingbird gives me uh, Rene Russo's number, takes a bong hit, and leaves, and I'm so Kingbird exits and Dave closes the door. He sit, Jeremy's going to play Todd. I'm going to play me. He sits down next to Todd on the couch. He plays some music. I wonder if I was playing guitar or I was playing a record. Who knows? And I say, okay, yep, here we go, Jeremy. You ready? Uh, Kingbird exits and Dave closes the door. He sits down next to Todd on the couch. He plays some music. Pack it up, man. Todd reaches for the bong. What was that number? Another delivery service? Nah, get this. Kingbird, who is insane, told me that it was Rene Russo's number. What? He said he got down with Gina Davis, too. He said Rene Russo needs a place to stay. Are you kidding me? He's full of shit. Rene Russo? Uh, Ransom Rene Russo? What, what else was she in? Uh, here. Todd uh, hangs, uh, hands the bong to Dave. 
Major League? I don't know. I know it sounds real bad, but come on now. This type of stuff has got to happen sometimes, right? Kingbird's a folk singer in New York. You never know who he's rubbing elbows with. You know, back in the day, this kind of stuff happened all the time, you know? No way? Are you telling me that this movie star is going to crash on your floor right here? you got to be kidding me. I think I'm going to give it a shot. You think this is the stupidest thing I've ever done? Possibly. Are you crazy, man? Are you going to call this woman? Possibly a homeless, heroin-addicted prostitute, but possibly a movie star. Just hit that fucking bong. Dave smokes the bong. I got to call her, man. How crazy would that be if it was Rene Russo? Impossible. If that's Rene Russo, I'll eat my fucking hat. Fade to black. That's beautiful. Boom. That's a beautiful scene. Great stuff. I would also like to point out for those of you listening uh, is that at the top of this document, it says last edit was made on December 24th, 2001. I wonder what I was doing with it. No, Sam must have looked at it in 2001. Um, yeah, I'm sure he just opened it and was like, what the fuck is this? Oh, my God. Does it does it take you back to that place? It, I mean, to that like, apartment? Oh, yeah, it, I mean, like, because I can picture it clear as a bell in my head. I mean, I can tell you where everything is, like what it smelled like, you know, like how yeah, ridiculous yeah, 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 Todd yeah. was just trying to play himself that he couldn't even do it. Um, like it was, yeah, it was, it was the perfect kind of shit show. It was a disaster. It was fantastic. Oh, my God. And look how far things have come. And, of course, you know, um, the tragedy is that Todd is not with us anymore. Um, and you can't, you can't like, quantify that at all, except that you can rejoice in that we got to enjoy his ridiculous brand of love and affection and, and greatness while he was alive. Um, and... You know, we were talking, you and I were talking right before we started, like we were, I was going over what we were going to do for the show. And I was like, Jared, can you believe how professional I am? And, um, (laughs) and I, I really enjoyed your answer because you, you actually got to meet Chris also. Yeah. Oh, uh, multiple times, you know, and that was, uh, it was, uh, it was great. You know, and I remember when you started doing this and yeah, for everyone out there, I mean, um, uh, I'm a fan of, of everyone who listens to this show. Um, like I, I, I scout the, the dopey nation posts on Facebook and, you know, like I, I see what, what people are putting up and it's, it's amazing. It makes me, it, you know, it, like I'm proud of you, Dave. And, and, you know, for all those people out there that this, you know, like, again, it's I'm I, like, I'm a fan of all of you. So it's, it's crazy. Uh, it's weird how that works. Jared, wouldn't you say the weirdest thing, though, Jared, the weirdest thing? It's like, you know, Dopey's, you know, four and a half years old or whatever, and, uh, you know, and I'm coming up on five years, but, like, you kicked me out of your apartment, or you kicked me out of your house, or basically I had to leave because I hadn't paid rent for a year or something, but you kicked me out of your house because I bled too much in the bathroom taking shots. You know what I'm saying? Like, I bled all over the house. I was a scourge. Right, well, that, I mean, like, that was one thing. You know, that was definitely one no, of my, them. No, my point is know? not that. My point is I was so down, so down, you know, like, in yeah. such bad shape. And, and, and you and I have been friends the whole time, but you didn't, I mean, could you possibly see me getting out of it? You know, now it's years later, but like, it's like we take that for granted, I think. How, I mean, because people listen to the show, they don't realize how bad I was, I don't. Oh, are you kidding me? I, and I have told this to multiple people. I've said uh, there was a point where I was like, Dave's never coming back. Like, that's it. 
the the person that I know and the person I grew up with and my friend, that person's gone and I don't think will ever, might not ever come back. Uh, Even if he gets clean, I don't even know if he will get back to where you know, he's, 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 you know, the person that he was, or at least, you know, the, the, the person that, uh, you know, the, that I recognize. So, I mean, honestly, this is such a joy because like, not only, not, not only do you get to do all of this, but selfishly I get my friend back. Um, and I, it's, and as, as much as I do love all of this, I can just can't tell. I, I mean, like, I'm so proud of you for doing, for, for what you've been able to do. Cause like to the depths that you got to, not a lot of people make it back. And you did. How bad was I in your, in your recollection? I mean, as bad as like, what was the worst in your mind? What do you mean? For their memory. Like when, well, like when you talk about like me being the way I had been as a kid, you know, how bad was I in those moments? Like, like what do you remember? Like, can you remember any like, Moments where you were like, holy shit, like Dave's gone kind of oh, thing. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, like, and just like little things, you know, like the fact that you almost set yourself on fire when you were living in the garage in the house in North Hollywood multiple times, you know, and it didn't seem to make any difference. The, the time in New York where where you called my, my parents' place over and over again, like between like 2 and 4 a.m., and they were like, this is insane. Like, literally, there's something wrong. And I was like, yeah, I know. Uh, just don't pick up the phone. You know, like, I I honestly Why did thought, I call your parents? Huh? Why was I calling your parents? You were trying to get me because you wanted to get me to come over with money. Ah. So I was at my parents' place, and you just kept calling over and over and over again. I mean, again, like, on the home line, because that's all there was, pretty much. But, you yeah, know, I like, still, that I was still it. Have the number. I still have the number very fresh on my mind. I'm yep. not going to say it like, I show. still have you and, and, and Robbie's, you know, Rob's uh, uh, numbers memorized, because those were the two I called the most when I was a kid. Um, but, yeah, like, there were, there were times where I thought there was no way you were ever coming back at all. And, honestly, Dave, I thought that the next step, like, is you – want, you want me to put in perspective how, I, how bad I thought it was? Like, I thought the only way it could get worse is if you died. That's basically it. You right. were on the cusp long enough for me to be like, yeah. It's true. That's it. it it's, I, I appreciate you saying that because – it's hard. It, I mean, it's 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 easy to know that that's the truth, right? It's easy to know that, like yeah. that I lived like that, and like, dude. I mean, I was in such bad shape in California, and the the joke was Jeremy. Jeremy was a stoner, uh, but a school teacher and an, a working actor and and an entrepreneur, and like you, he had so many things going on. And the joke was, and Jeremy also took care of business. You know, Jeremy took care of the ha- the house. Jeremy took care of basically all of us, uh, like annoyingly, but you had to take care of everybody in the house, every bill in the house, every coming and going. And I would say to Todd, I would be like, you don't have a chance without Jeremy. Jeremy's the only one who knows what he's doing. So from now on, I'm going to live my life based on what would Jeremy do? <laughs> and it became my own personal WWJD as opposed to what would Jesus do? And Todd would get so angry at me because I think I wrote it on my wrist once. I wrote WWJD and Todd would ask me something and I would just point to it. Um, and uh, But the fact of the matter was you had your shit so together and um and i was just so fucked up i mean when i left when i left your apartment when i left that house um 
thank God Jenny was there. Yeah. Um, because I wouldn't have lived, or I don't know, maybe I would have gotten my shit together. <laughs> but uh, but those years were some fucking lost, lost years. Yeah. You know, it it just and it is it's a miracle to and like that's the other thing is like. Um, I got better, you know, out of a, mir- a miraculous moment, and then I followed up that miraculous moment with, um, you know, recovery stuff, with 12-step stuff. Yep. But um, when we go back into it, it's just crazy. But let's move on. Um, we have two th- We have three things. Let's do, um, let's do the last email I sent you. Could you read the last email I sent you? Sure. Hold on. This is from a dopey fan also named Sam. That's three Sams in one show, by the way. Sam, the dopey producer. Sam, the Patricia Mitchell writer. And now Sam, the dopey fan who wrote this nice email. I texted it to you. Is is this the one that uh, sincerely Sammy at the end? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, You want me to read it? Yes, please. Cool. You got it. Um, You want like a a voice? You're, you're, You're... no, I want just read it. You're a good reader, just read. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like you, you got options here. All right, here we go. Just please <clears throat> read. Read it earnestly and clearly with energy. Of course. Oh, thank you. That's those are some wonderful directions, David. Thank you. You asked me for direction. I'm telling you, I want you to read. Okay, no, I read it with a, a Pakistan. Read I it with a, a Pakistani d- accent. No, I asked a dumbass question. Where it was just like you want me to do a stupid voice like Elmo or an Australian accent, but no, I wasn't actually going to do it. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. Um, Hey, Dave. I first heard about Dopey a few months ago on NPR. I was on my way to the grocery store where a segment on successful amateur podcast came on and Dopey was the first review. I love the synopsis so much that I immediately subscribed on Spotify and began to listen daily. I quickly became obsessed, found, and followed the Dopey page on a few social media sites and stalked the pages like a psychopath. Unfortunately... I found that Todd and Chris would eventually lose their battle with addiction before I got uh, to those episodes, and it broke my heart. Although I had known that these episodes would eventually come, I was and am incredibly crushed by the reality. I just finished listening to episode 143, and I'm heartbroken. I just wanted to thank you for continuing to keep this podcast alive and for being so honest and open about the turmoils of addiction. I myself am not afflicted. I've experimented with psychedelics, but never had any interest with any other flavors of drugs. Even as someone who isn't an addict, your podcast inspires growth, appreciation, and self-awareness. You don't hide the truth of recovery, the darkness, the struggle, the pain, and the humor. My favorite part about it all is that you guys accidentally did this. LOL. You've gone, with the, the, you've gone with the flow, chaotic and unorganized, and we're still able to deeply inspire. I'm so sad that Chris and Todd will no longer be a part of Dopey, but I know the show will only continue to be great. Success in media in any form you choose uh, you ch- uh, cho- uh, chose just seems inevitable. Since I started listening to Dopey, I felt that you were destined to be successful. Chris felt this, and his acknowledgement led to the best re- recovery podcast out there. I wish you the very best, and I look forward to finally catching up, and maybe I'll write back with a dopey story I'm not too embarrassed about. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Sincerely, Sammy. Thank you so much, Sammy. That That's very beautiful, and it makes me blush. And the, the thing about it is um, it's 100 episodes since 143, and he, and he just listened to it. And... Uh, and Todd and Chris will always be a part of the show. 
even if it's just like this, you know what I mean? Like, even if it's just like telling stories about them or just remembering them because, uh, they are the show, you know? And, um, and you know, they just did a fucking list of recovery podcasts and they didn't put dopey on it, which just makes me sick. I don't know. Some fucking English site makes me sick. All right. Well, disgusts me. They're just a bunch of wankers. Isn't that a, that's a sweet, sweet email though, right? That's amazing. Are you kidding me? And you know, it's, and again, you know, like I, I, I look at the <clears throat> Dopey Nation posts as, you know, all the time and this is not abnormal, Dave, you know, um, I, I love the people who come to it new, the ones who know, the ones who don't, um, it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing little community and honestly not that little. No, it's it's a growing community, and I'm I'm I didn't know that you were in the Dopey Nation Facebook group. That's cool. Oh yeah, um, you're silent in there, like me. Well, I just because again, you know, like I, you know, I I'm lucky. I get to talk to you about this stuff here, and you know, and I get to I get to turn people onto the podcast. Like I get to say, I was like, oh, you want something worthwhile? Then you got to check this out. You know, and not just you know because I've done it a, a couple times, or I you know like I love listening to your dad, but you know. uh you know, just because I think there are people who need to hear it and people who would enjoy it, let alone you know should hear it. Um, but isn't my uh, dad good on the show? Oh, I love it. But but again, like I, it's the same tone when he used to yell at us when we were in the back seat of the car. So for me, it's like I could fall asleep to that. Um, right, 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 right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I no, love it's, that. I it, love that. Yeah, it's, it's just like I love looking at what, what people post on on. Uh, uh, you know, and again, so like I get to do this with you, so I want to hear what everyone else has to say. That's the fun part about going on the the message boards and things like that. All right, you ready? I'm going to play a dopey voicemail. Are you ready? I'm always ready. Hey, what's up, Dave and Dopey Nation? If this makes it on the show, I'm on my second take of recording the story because I just recorded it a second ago and it took me like ten minutes. So I'm going to try and cut it down. All right, getting right to it. I was in Denver like three years ago visiting my younger brother and uh, his girlfriend at the time. We're at his place. My buddy comes over, who I'd known since like elementary school but hadn't seen in a few years, and he brings my little brother a 10 strip of acid. And we all take a little bit, and I start coming up, you know, 30, 40 minutes later. It was pretty quick, I think, because it was really strong. And I start feeling it, and I can tell it's going to be a lot. It's going to be good shit. And uh, for some reason, that feeling just made me want to take more. And so I get my little brother to give me another chunk. Like, we didn't really look at how much it was. Um, And recklessly take this other chunk before I even knew how much the original dose was going to affect me. And anyway, I'm starting to trip real hard. And going outside to smoke cigarettes like every 20 minutes. My little brother and his girlfriend are tripping hard too. And they're getting paranoid about the fact that I am going outside so often to smoke cigarettes outside the apartment building. For some reason they thought like, you know, their neighbors would think it's weird or something. But of course nobody gives a shit, you know. They wouldn't think twice about, you know, why I was going outside to smoke a bunch. Just think I might be having a rough night or something. Anyway... Um, I come back inside from smoking and my little brother tells me that if I go outside again, I have, I can't come back in. And so I'm trying to like argue with him about this. Uh, cause like I need to smoke, like I'm tripping balls. I have to be able to smoke. So 
we're arguing and you know like if you're <laughs> ever trying to argue with someone while you're tripping balls it's like damn near impossible and it just you know ruins the whole experience anyway my buddy who brought the acid over comes over to me with his phone out and he shows me a message that he had typed out on his phone just like an empty text and it said uh come with me because he knew like you know i needed to get out of there uh just for the sake of everyone's experience and <laughs> so <laughs> my buddy does like before we leave he does like a maybe like a nine inch rail of ketamine <laughs> and another person that was there a friend of my little brother's i remember him saying like do you think you should drive after you just railed like nine inches worth of k and my buddy's like yeah no it's fine i do this all day it's, it's nothing anyway uh we go over to my buddy's friend's house where he had just gotten the acid earlier and we're hanging out there for a little bit and at one point he and his friend go into another room i don't know what they were doing maybe they were doing some other you know drugs or shit and i'm in the living room alone watching uh whose line is it anyway tripping my face off and next thing i know i'm watching and ryan styles uh tall goofy guy on whose line is uh doing like a monologue and he looks at me through the camera through the screen and he like makes eye contact with me and he morphs like into a demon and his voice gets all deep and weird and he says to me he says yeah you're gonna die tonight they're gonna kill you and i'm like oh shit my friends like my friend and his friend are gonna murder me like that's what they do you know they like get people real fucked up on acid and they uh murder them in this like whole crazy nightmare situation and uh so I stand up and I'm about to run out this dude's front door into God knows where Denver, you know, like I had no idea where I was. And thankfully, right before I did that, they walk back in the room and they're, you know, like they're not coming at me trying to kill me. And so I realized like, oh, you know, just this is just like really strong acid. I'm just tripping way too hard. Uh, anyway, long story short, that's, I mean, that's pretty much the end of the craziness with that. Uh, I ended up going back to my friend's place and uh, drinking sake and smoking cigs for the rest of the night. Uh, so he didn't have any beer, which was like my drug of choice for a long time. Um, anyway, that kind of launched me into like a multi-year obsession with psychedelics. Uh, although I had I'd done them before, like I had never done such a powerful dose and the rest of the night went really well. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't do psychedelics anymore. I'm too scared to do them these days because of worrying about bad experiences. My last experience with them was really, uh, negative. Uh, I had a really bad, uh, bad time, uh, overdoing it at, uh, string cheese uh, incident new year in broomfield colorado uh in uh 2019 and i also don't do psychedelics anymore because i'm worried that they're gonna make me want to drink which uh, alcohol abuser for you know near 10 years uh sober off of booze for over nine months now still smoking weed but that's it um trying to quit that and cigs but uh <laughs> uh anyway just thought I'd share this story with you guys. Uh, I started listening about like 
five months ago, maybe, when I heard the uh, This American Life episode about the podcast and about Chris. Just caught up not too long ago to Chris dying. Even though I knew it was coming up, I was really bummed. But I've been listening, like, since that, I've been listening, like, even more heavily and just started listening to the current episodes. Um, joined the Dobie Nation Facebook group. Posted about my struggles with weed currently, and it's been really fucking fantastic. You know, got to discuss with a lot of really helpful people, um, you know, what's going on with me. And it's been, it's been amazing. So, yeah, anyway, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dopey Nation, uh, if you hear this. And uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles. That is an. I think that's an amazing voicemail. I think this dude actually did stop smoking, bud. Um, and it was so crazy because that that's a very synchronistic uh, voicemail, and I didn't plan it like that. He just listened to one forty three. He just listened to This American Life, and um, and he's a whose line is it anyway fan, which is which was a. Uh, your fucking show, right? <laughs> yeah, I just love the fact like tripping and watching whose line is it anyway, not understanding anything that's going on. <laughs> eh. I didn't understand I didn't understand that show without psychedelics. So. Yeah, well, you um, know. For for anyone who liked, I, you know, short form improv nonsense, it was the place to go. Yes. I think that was very enjoyable. I, I and uh, and I remember you had brought up our. Uh, I think I don't remember the last time I tripped. I, I I think we tripped in California like once or twice, but I barely remember. Do you remember us tripping in California at all? Um, no. So then the last time was like around. Was it around Jurassic Park in in the city and? Fucking dino sizing McDonald's meals yeah, I mean, and like, eating on the the roof for acid? on the twenty first floor. Yeah, yeah, for acid, I think it had to be. Um, I think I tripped again after that. Um, I don't remember though. Like I, I felt like I had eaten so much acid in college that I didn't. I just was done. Also, heroin and acid is a weird combination. But Todd was tripping until the end. Todd would like go to see fish. Uh, the last year of his life, and he would still eat doses and and ecstasy. Yeah, did you know that? <laughs> I'm just like Jesus. That's uh. <laughs> no. I mean, because because I was just thinking about it. I'm like, I really think the last time I did acid was was at uh, was yeah that that Jurassic Park summer because I did I did mushrooms a couple of times after that, and but I don't think I did anything any other psychedelics or anything like that after it. Well, huh. I love that email. That's uh, or that's that great. voicemail. That's Jameson in the Dopey Nation, and I do think he stopped smoking weed. If it's a great dopey voicemail, it's a great lesson for Dopey Nation people to write or send in a funny, shorty, dopey voicemail. The perfect under seven minutes sweet spot, funny, dopey, good stuff. Thank you, Jameson. I hope you are doing great, uh, Jeremy. It's been a joy. To have you on the show. Is there yeah. anything else you'd like to add before you go? No, just, you know, stay strong out there, everybody. Um, yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a crazy time. Stay safe. Um, stay sane. You know, keep listening, definitely. And, um, yeah, what else do I have to say? No, nothing. You know, like, again, you know, it's, uh, I, I just love what you're doing here, man. You know that. Well, 
Thank you, Jeremy. Love, love to have you on the show. And I wish, uh, I guess you'll be back in New York eventually, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was supposed to come back this summer, but we'll see if that's going to happen. Well, hopefully I'll see you soon. As for everybody else, um, leave a review on iTunes. Make it positive for fuck's sake. Don't give me a brain aneurysm. Leave a (laughs) five-star review on iTunes. Subscribe to Dopey on iTunes. I think that's a big thing. You know, that's how you get in the rankings. And, you know, it's important to me and it's important to my father that we are ranked. And Jeremy, right, Jer? Don't you want to see Dopey ranked? Oh, are you kidding me? It should be near the top, if not the top, of every single podcast list, regardless of what it is. And we're not on even the shittiest fucking recovery podcast list in the world. And we're not on it. It's like, what the fuck is that? What the <laughs> fuck is that? Just, it makes, that shit makes me fucking crazy. Oh my God. Anyway, Jer, it's been a pleasure. I love you. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Oh, you want, why don't you give us an outro? Say goodbye to everybody. Yes, I'll Did do you say it. goodbye already? Yeah, you do. Okay, well, uh, yeah, stay strong, uh, Dopey Nation, and a la Chris, toodles. Me not say toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. Wonder if it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a trip up in the sky. Was that a plane just passing by? And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all these people what it means to be alive And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Wonder if they'd pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind Take the high road, no matter how far it winds Cause peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had Stuff is making me mad, I don't wanna call my dad It's all I ever had, it's all I ever had, it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And the stuff is making me mad, I don't wanna call my dad It's all I ever had, it's all I ever had, it's all I ever had This is the Dopey Podcast This is the Dopey Podcast